Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we're going to be talking to Lonerbox, yes. who is a very interesting YouTuber. I really liked uh, some of the videos I watched of him. He did a very deep dive on the issue of abortion, exploring the pro-life and the pro-choice perspective and pointing like the flaws and going through the various arguments. Very good video. Did one on, remember when Jordan Peterson went after that model, because uh, she was a little overweight and he's like, sorry, not beautiful. He did a whole deep dive on that. I thought it was really fascinating. And um, he's done a number of things, free speech stuff, deplatforming stuff, where it's just more thoughtful than most people out here in the space. So I, I wanted to talk to him. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Be a good combo. So um, there's a few things we want to get to, though, before we dive into that. Let's start with, this is the big story. Yeah. Now, you've been busy. You haven't even really, uh, you haven't. I was going to say dived into this, dove into this, whatever, however you say. <laughs> well, I also, I mean, I'm decidedly less online than you two. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, yeah that's so true. I just don't like naturally dig into these things instantly as much as you do. Okay. But I do find it very interesting. So, so. we got, guys, we got a war, an absolute war brewing. It's actually already here. It's not just brewing. It's here uh, in conservative media. So to this point, you've seen the fights in Congress, right? The Matt Gates versus Kevin mm. McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene versus yep. Lauren Boebert. So that's already exploded. And even Trump versus DeSantis. We're, that's already like, we're already in full swing, right? Uh -huh. Now it's crossover into conservative media. And I've never seen this in conservative media, have you? They're usually like very, they have like a default solidarity perspective where it's like, look, we're going after the people who we should go after the most. We're going after the left because we don't agree with them. Right. So they're always kind of united in a way. Yeah. And But now, mm, that's over. Cracks are showing. That's over. And this is, you know, usually it's the left that's infighting and slitting each other's throats and, you know, the narcissism of small differences. Now it's these guys. So anyway, Steven Crowder goes uh, on his YouTube channel and he posts a video titled, It's Time to Stop. <laughs> it's Time to Stop dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I love the dot, dot, like dot. Try like dramatic effect. Yeah, I yeah. like that. So, and it's a 28 minute long video. Now I watched the entire thing. Of course you did. Yeah. And I mean, it was on double speed, so it was only 15 minutes, but I watched the entire thing. 28 minutes would be embarrassing. <laughs> 28 minutes straight of, anyway. So um, what he does is he lays out, here's a contract that I was offered by a conservative media outlet, and it's flat out exploitative. And this is a garbage system, and big conservative media is in bed with big tech. And so he calls it, this is the big con. He says this is the big con and how many young creators who don't have many followers who want to get into the business, how many of them sign these exploitative contracts, mm. right? And so he asked for people's email to go sign up at thebigcon.com or something. And so he makes it clear like, no, now I'm going to be a competitor to the, to the people who he got offered a contract from. So he used to be with The Blaze. The Blaze sort of became like the CR or something like that. It became a different company. Oh, okay. I didn't um, know that. Apparently he's been independent for a little bit. But he's like shopping around. He was a free agent. He was like looking, okay, let's see. Who can I work with? Where can I cash in or whatever? Yeah. And so now in the video, he, he goes through the provisions of the contract and is like, look how exploitative this is. Look how terrible this is. He doesn't say who it's from. Okay. He like hides who it's from. Okay. But he's like, hey, don't make me bring up the receipts. Like I will sort of spill the tea and tell you where it's from and everything if you guys don't do what's right. And I guess from his perspective, which right is like make your contracts less less exploitative or whatever. Now we're gonna get into in a little bit. Is it actually exploitative? And what are what's actually the incentive here? Like, why is Crowder doing this, right? Okay. Um, but first, let me show you the video. This is the like early part of the video, and then we'll talk more about it. Take a look. If you've watched for the last decade, you know that I've always made it clear that we here at Mug Club are in the business of serving you, the viewer, you watching, listening right now. I've also made it clear that I wouldn't be in the business of attacking 
other conservatives, uh, regardless of disagreements or personal issues. And I've always explained my logic was relatively simple. I believe that the world was better with more voices out there rather than less, regardless of minute differences, considering the magnitude of the battle that we are genuinely fighting for our country right now. But for the first time, I have to say that I believe many of those in charge in the right-leaning media are actually at odds with what's best for you, the viewer, the customer, uh, and more importantly, the country. We here at Mug Club, we thought that we were all in this together, that we were fighting the, the, the media, entertainment, industrial complex. Um, we thought that we were all genuinely taking it to big tech. But too many of those in charge of the big conservative platforms um, are verifiably in bed with them. Big tech is in bed with big con. The people you thought, the people I thought were fighting for you, a lot of it has been a big con. So people were wondering, okay, like, who's he talking about? Mm -hmm. There were only two major players who he could have been talking about. Okay. It was either PragerU okay. or it was the Daily Wire, Ben gotcha. Shapiro's Daily Wire. Because those are the two big players. Those are the two biggest ones. In the no other. I mean, he's already on Rumble, so clearly he has a good relationship with Rumble. It's not like they offered him this contract or whatever. Okay. Okay, so coming to find out, the very next day after he releases, again, he didn't say the name. Mm -hmm. People were speculating in the comments, all that stuff. Everybody thinks it's Daily Wire. Daily Wire releases a video. It's like the CEO. The CEO just lays all his cards out on the table and was like, look, we'll show you. he showed you some of the contract. We'll show you the whole contract, right? And it's like, this is what we offered him. So he was offered $50 million. $50 million DZACs, y'all. $50 million DZACs. Okay. Over, I think it was a four-year period. Oh and then there's God. even more, maybe like another 25 after for whatever, wow. something like that, right? I don't remember all the specifics, but it definitely was $50 million, wow. okay? And then, so the stuff that Crowder is annoyed by, because you're probably sitting here thinking like, exploitative, my ass cheeks. Except, right. the, except the contractor, don't, but don't pretend like, oh, I've I'm been so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you really? Are you really? A lot of people would love to be that offer. persecuted, Dippy. Okay, so here's what Crowder's mad at. So one of the provisions of the contract uh, says the following. If Crowder is boycotted or dropped by more than 50% of his uh, advertisers, mm -hmm. uh, that is 50% of the revenue from those partners, then uh, the company, and, and the company is not able to replace that within 90 days, then the fee that he's given will be reduced by 25%. So you could mm -hmm. take 25% off of, you know, whatever it is per year, 12 million per year. Okay. It's reduced if you lose 50% of your revenue. Okay. Um, then they go on to talk about, hey, if there's a content strike on your channel from YouTube, or if there's a ban, a uh, YouTube ban or whatever, then you also lose a, a certain percentage of the fee. So like, you know, if you get a strike on YouTube, you lose X percent, 20 percent, whatever. It's, you know, Apple Podcasts, same thing. Facebook, you lose 10 percent. Spotify, 10 percent. So he looks at this and his conclusion is, and he harps away on this in the video, is like, you guys are in bed with big tech because what you're saying is, hey, liberals, leftists, come boycott us because it's going to work. That's what he's saying, effectively. Now, again, he's getting 50 million, he would get $50 million, and they're saying if you lose 50% of your revenue, we'll cut your fee 25%. So the numbers on that might actually work out still in Crowder's favor, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? But just the fact that 
there's any provision. They that's want like, the creator to bear the risk of a potential like boycott or advertiser ban or some sort of strike on the channel. Some of the some risk, of it. but the number might actually it might actually work out because again, they said we'll reduce your fee by twenty five percent if you lose half of your revenue. Mm. So it could still be beneficial for him in a way. Right. It all depends on the exact numbers. And we don't know the exact numbers. Well, to your point. So listen, if you are independent, totally on your own and there's an advertiser strike or you're like, you know, dropped from YouTube, banned off of YouTube or whatever. Obviously, you're bearing 100 percent of that risk. So in theory, if you're signing on with Daily Wire, they're actually mitigating some of the risk that Correct. you would face if you're an independent creator is, now, is what you're saying, right? Crowder, yes, but Crowder goes on to point out, I guess they didn't know. I've been demonetized on YouTube for three years. <clears throat> he hasn't had YouTube revenue for three years. Whoa. And so he doesn't make any ad revenue. He makes his money through Mug Club. I guess he makes his money through... Um, what is it? Mug Club is like you literally mug club, buy mugs? Mugs or merch and okay. it's, it's his thing. And he makes a decent amount of money through it. I mean, look how much Alex Jones was making from his like Infowars story. He makes a yeah. lot. And Crowder's got a huge, I mean, he's got over 5 million subscribers, almost yeah. 6 million subscribers. And his views, his videos get phenomenal views. Yeah. So he has a real audience there. Yeah. And then he may be, I don't know for sure, but he might make mo- some money through Rumble, either from an upfront payment that they gave him or through advertisers. They're not 100% sure on that front. So he's, he's independent right now. And clearly makes a lot of money right now, but clearly he takes it as an insult that he's offered 50 million. Now, the funniest part of this is he's like the biggest advocate of capitalism. Right. Hey, Stephen, this is exactly the system you argue for on a daily basis. True. Now, by the way, you're under no obligation to, it's not like they give you the contract and, oh, now I'm in it. No, you'd have to agree to it. You'd have to sign to it. And also, by the way, if he wanted to, he could just counteroffer. He'd be like, here, get rid of all of these provisions about if there's a strike or if there's a copyright there or whatever. Get rid of all of that, and then we got a deal. He could have done that. He could have said, here's my counteroffer. In fact, I'm sure they were waiting for a counteroffer knowing that this guy's got over 5 million subscribers. This is not like some upstart just out of college who has no, you know, not isn't established yet. So he clearly didn't counteroffer. He clearly put them on blast, and he hid. He didn't say it's a $50 million contract. Yes. He just showed these provisions, the bad provisions. Because he that fact would not be... I mean, people would exactly. look at that and be like, oh, yeah, this is so, like wage slavery, poor guy. I don't know if he didn't think Daily Wire would respond, but the Daily Wire guy responded and was basically like, look, man, that's that's business, right? Like, this is this is the way it works. And so my theory is he... I think he was planning all along to launch his own competitor to Daily Wire. You think so? And he's using this as like a springboard to do that, to try to make it look like, look at how exploitative they are. Like, look at what they do. And he wants to take some market share for them and use that as like a launching pad for his own. Right. Now, you told me this hilarious. Jordan Peterson, who works for the Daily Wire, retweeted Stephen Crowder's video, not realizing (laughs) that Stephen, that he was talking about the Daily Wire. (laughs) And Jordan Peterson, of course, just signed a big contract with Daily Wire. Now, by the way, I looked for that number last night. Crystal and I couldn't find it. I don't know how much money he's making. Oh, it's got to be. But if they're giving Stephen Crowder 50 million or offering him 50 million over four years, which he took. It, it was insulting um, to him, at, right? Yeah. Then uh, he had to be making, I mean, more than that. He had a bigger, he, I mean, he's kind of bigger than Steven Crowder is. Yeah. Right? I would say so. I would yeah. say that he's a bigger So what's draw. he getting, $100 million? That's 
It's crazy the amount. I mean, it also just does expose the amount of money what they are playing with over there in the conservative media ecosystem is just a whole other. That is world. such a, an important point. That's such a great point because, and I remember this from way back in the day, back when Glenn Beck had his radio show, but this was before the Blaze. Mark Levin is in the same boat. Rush Limbaugh is in the same boat. Just so everybody understands, they are welfare queens on that side of the aisle because they have these right wing think tanks. The American Enterprise Institute or Freedom Works or the Heritage Foundation, and they are swimming in money that's donated to them from billionaires. They're billionaire run operations. And then they just give basically checks, no strings attached to all these various like Prager universities, mm -hmm. like almost fully funded by that stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you have these huge think tanks backed by billionaires, and the whole point is, hey, we want to get our propaganda out there, so let's just pay propagandists. Right. And they give them millions every year. There's no yeah, I mean, turning coin lose. is bolstered by all these people, too. They can't yeah. lose. And they there, cannot there is lose. No, I know there's like, it's funny, there's a lot of projection from the right that there's a similar thing going on in the left. They imagine, <laughs> they imagine like George Soros is funding everything, creating this network, and it's just, yeah. Are I mean, you kidding me? They're projecting what the reality is on their side, on, you know, what they think must be happening on the left, guys. The funny thing is, is not that all the money is on the right. There is just no doubt about we it. We are direct competitors to these people, and they're bitching over uh, only $50 million over four years, bro? What, you trying to rob me, bro? This is like... We're on different planets. Yeah. Well, I They're like nowhere near. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is a small I like, operation. We raise through small dollar donations. We don't get any. Nobody cuts us a check. I like your point too about how much in conflict with the stated values of like um about free market capitalism. Right. And then it's like, well, this is what it looks like. You know, contracts and you know whether or not you think this particular fifty million dollar contract was exploitative. There are a lot of labor contracts that people who don't have that kind of wealth and fame are forced into signing that, you know, that are actually exploitative, um, that they don't seem to have much care and concern about. Hey, Stephen, have you taken a position on the thing that just happened the other week, which is the FTC said, uh, what, what, what did the FTC argue? The non no more non-compete yeah, clauses, right. which is very exploitative, which robs billions of dollars from workers over the course of every single year. Did he come out and say, look, they're right. These they're doing the right thing here. Hey, props Put on to the Biden Joe Biden. Yeah. Props to Biden. Props to Lena Khan. They're correct. He didn't say I mean, a goddamn word about that. I don't follow his work that he did, closely, no, no, but no, I'm going to no go way. ahead there's and no assume that, no that didn't that didn't ultimately happen. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot that's interesting about this too. I think the other meta piece is... Yeah, after the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign, like basically the left really fractured and turned to all this like infighting and whatever. And so I don't think it's an accident that after you had Trump campaign lose and then a mid the midterms were really the thing that that killed them where they thought there was a red wave and they thought it was going to be these historic returns and they were taking the Senate, they were going to like get giant margins in the House and none of that comes to pass. I don't think it's an accident that after that, you're seeing a similar fracturing happening on the right now. Now you pointed out, you see it in Congress with, there was just reports in the Daily Beast about like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene had some screaming match in the girls' bathroom <laughs> or whatever. That, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and um, but I mean, it's playing out obviously very publicly. And then now for the first time, you see these sorts of fractures emerging on the right, which it's always been ironic that the right seemed to have a better idea of solidarity than the left did right. in terms of their media space. But this no, may be just the the opening crack. And because these are the sort of battles that for, they do force people to take sides. That's exactly right. No, you're so right. All of that is so true because, yeah, now you see like one of the one of the issues on the right is the sticking point is going to be vaccine stuff. Right. You have people who are just flat out. It's it's a hoax. It's a scam. 
shouldn't get the vaccine. You have people who are kind of in the middle on that. And then you have people who are like, no, it worked. And Trump gave it to us. And let's stop being silly. Like this was a good thing. Well, and so there's going to be a head over that, a fight over that. Stop the steal. There's still like there's disagreement on stop the steal. There's going to be big disagreements in this Republican primary. I mean, you got some people who are still ride or die for Trump, and you got some people who are really into DeSantis. I mean, Shapiro and them are obviously like Team planning DeSantis. They're clearly Crowder is posturing as more like I don't I'm know. probably going to stick with. You the think big he's going to stick with Trump? I mean, again, he has to. If if his plan is what I think it is, then he has to differentiate himself from the Daily yeah, Wire. I mean, and that clearly, would be the strategic move. Likely. Clearly, one of the things he's doing here is they're exploitative. I'm not exploitative. Because one of the things he said is like, go to, you know, whatever the name of the website was, stopthecon or something like that dot com. Yeah. And it was like, uh, give me your email address. And hey, if you want some sort of a fair business deal, if you're getting started in this conservative commentary, reach out. Maybe we'll make something work. Maybe you'll be an independent contractor. Maybe you'll be an employee if you want to be an employee. So he's trying to say, like, I'm going to be the more ethical version. And by the way, let's keep it real. There are undertones, very clear undertones of like, oh, the Daily Wire run by Ben Shapiro. Look at these uh, greedy, exploitative contracts which are being put forth by these you-know-whos. You know what I'm saying? That <laughs> yeah. was the other thing. The Kanye thing. There was, there was actual fighting on the right I, over the Kanye yeah, thing. Yeah, I was going to bring over up anti-Semitism. Kanye well. um, Yeah, I mean, I think the the Trump piece, it will be interesting to see how Crowder positions himself there because, yeah, the smart market opening would be to stay aligned with Trump, uh, position yourself as adversarial to Daily Wire, which is pumping DeSantis. And one of the knocks from the right on DeSantis is the idea that he's being sort of like this is like the new establishment play to take out Trump and that DeSantis is part of the establishment. And this is like, you know, it's it's like a a modified kind of never Trump uh, effort, except with someone who's like a little bit of a different model who didn't like ultimately come directly on against Trump. And this is like the sort of refined 2.0 never Trump movement bolstered by the establishment. So you could see if he does go in that direction, you can see the positioning for that. Uh, in this particular fight. So I guess the final point I'll make is kind of reiterating what I made before, which is you want to talk about exploitative contracts. First of all, I don't think you're going to get much sympathy from anybody who's really paying attention and has a brain because they're going to think like they offered you 50 million. Now, by the way, that may actually be less than what he's worth on the market. I don't know. Right. Maybe he actually, you know, instead of $12 million a year, he'd make like 15. Jesus Christ. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how that's even possible. But like, it's still, you could... You could accept it. You could not accept it. You can counter offer it, offer it. But the idea that this is like, like this is an affront and this is, you know, a huge problem and this is flat out exploitation. No, you want to talk about exploitation, Stephen Crowder. Let's talk about, you know, the whole Lochner era of the Supreme Court. I don't know how many, how many people know about this, but like back in the day, the Supreme Court ruled that you have a right to contract if you're an employer with your employee. So what that means is, the government has no right to get involved and say, I'm going to change the terms of the contract to make them more fair to the employee. Yeah. So if you agree to it, you agree to it. So that means overtime pay pff, ain't no overtime pay. You you agreed to this thing. You're working for less than what a minimum wage should be. I had too bad. You kind of you signed up. You agreed to it. They tell you to work seven days of the week. Well, it, you know, it, hey, you signed the contract. What do you want me to tell you? So with this philosophy, it made it so that the government couldn't be like an independent arbitrator to get involved and say, you know what? Maybe child labor is not okay. Maybe we should have laws around that. Maybe there should be some minimum wage. So people, maybe there should be some rules around overtime pay or like a minimum work week, like a maximum work week where if you work this much, if you go over that, we, they got to pay you more 
for, for working. Yeah. Like that, those are exploitative contracts. There's a yeah. million things we could point to, genuine, serious exploitative contracts. And he's he's doing it over a $50 well, million dollar offer, bro. And what they always say to low-wage workers, you know, if they're like gig workers at Uber, or they're working at like Dollar General where they're being abused or whatever, it's like free market. Go If you don't like it, go get a that's different exactly job. That's exactly right, yeah. Go to get what a happened? different job. That's their whole philosophy. And, you know, that's aimed at people who may not have a lot of other options or may live in a town where there aren't a lot of other options or the other options look very much like the shitty option that they already have. Whereas, I mean, he obviously has other potential market opportunities where he's going to be just so fine. Tr- I don't I know so, why this is moving so I was much. so triggered by that. I know. <laughs> it's like the, the mic's here. It's like, oh, <laughs> it keeps floating. That's anyway. all right. That's all right. Um, so I, I don't know about you, but let him fight. What do you say? Oh, let him fight. Absolutely. I'm not taking a side, not taking a team, just going to watch it all unfold. Yeah. Tim Pool, funny enough, was like, he, he Oh, yeah, what did he like, say? What did Crowder's he say right it? about it all, something like that underneath the video. Really? But then he ca- talked about it on his show. And in the process of talking about it, he was like giving a more like nuanced perspective. Mm. Like, you know, not necessarily, you know, you, you don't know what the daily, somebody on his show made the point, if the contract was $5 million over five years and it had these, you know, terms attached to it, they would say, yeah, that is exploitative. But if you offered a hundred million and has those things, it's like, that's not really exploitative, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I guess it depends on the details. But again, the money these people have, the money they have, Crystal. This is ridiculous. And this is why people say, like, if you're on the left, you, you would, it would be good for you personally, for your bottom line, to do the whole, like, why I left the left yeah. to move to the right thing. Because well, yeah, they have so much money on I'm, that side. That's right. We you have wonder why you Dickie McGeezak's on this side. That narrative unfold, the why I left the left narrative unfold, but you don't see it happening the other way. Yeah, why I left the right. <laughs> yeah. Why like, socialism is actually based. Yeah, you don't no. see that because it would mean that you lose, like, millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, so our ego took a huge hit looking at these numbers. <laughs> and I didn't even get any complaining about it. Pff, only 50 million, bro? Exploitation. <laughs> so, guys, please support us on Substack. <laughs> Bottom Support. line. <laughs> go pay five bucks a month for the love of God. This is, we're embarrassed over here. You know, or go go to Secular Talk Patreon or go, go become a member of Breaking Points. <laughs> this is this is crazy. It's bad. Um, let's pause for a minute so I can fix this because this is annoying the shit on me. I don't know why it's, um, there, now we're talking. Now it's tight. Okay. okay. Um, all right. Alec Baldwin? Yeah, go ahead. Dive into that. Go to camera two. I can pick it up there. Um, All right. So we had a little uh, breaking news happen today that I wanted to get your reaction to, Kyle. So you remember the fatal shooting on the set of that film, Rust, where uh, somehow Alec Baldwin ends up with a loaded gun in his hand, live ammunition, when it should have been, you know, a prop gun with no ammo in it whatsoever, and ends up accidentally killing this woman on the set. And there were a lot of, how the hell did this happen? Like this never should have been a real gun. There never should have been live, all this stuff. Well, now it just came out today. He is actually going to be charged with involuntary manslaughter in that fatal shooting. Um, The film's armorer, which is the person who is charged with like dealing with the guns on the set and making sure that everything is safe, will also be charged. The assistant director has agreed to plead guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon. Wait, is that the same charge in voluntary manslaughter for the person who handles the gear too? Correct. Okay, same for him and Alec Baldwin, you're saying? Correct. So the film's armorer overseeing weapons, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, will also be charged with involuntary manslaughter. According to a statement from the Santa Fe area district attorney, those charges expect to be filed 
filed by the end of the month. Um, and then there was the guilty plea on the charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon. Um, just some of the details here. Uh, Alec Baldwin's attorney, of course, says Mr. Baldwin had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the film set. He relied on the professionals with whom he worked who assured him the gun did not have live rounds. We will fight these charges and we will win. Uh, Baldwin has claimed that he never pulled the trigger that it was like a gun malfunction. That I think seemed, people kind of prove that that's total, that not possible. Totally yeah. bogus. So yeah. that seems bogus. I mean, whether or not he remembers pulling the trigger, he certainly pulled the trigger. I also thought this was an interesting comment from the special prosecutor who was assigned to the case. Uh, she said, if any one of these three people, Alec Baldwin, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, or David Halls had done their job, Helena Hutchins, that's the woman who was killed, would be alive mm. today. Um, and procedurally, what will happen is once the charges are filed, prosecutors will then present their case before a judge, and then they'll rule whether there's probable cause to move forward with an actual trial. So that's what So what do you at. think of this? I want to know what your take before I get into mine, because there's a really interesting philosophical question at the heart of this. Well, given, I mean, given what we know about it, I think it's probably an appropriate charge because you have a responsibility on that set, both as the armor, as the director, as the actor, to check and make sure that it's safe, that it's not a real gun, that there isn't live uh, a live bullet in the um, chamber. And so, you know, I, I, especially given there are a lot of questions about before any of this happened, there were crew members who were quitting the production over safety concerns, um, over, you know, all kinds of working condition concerns. So there was a lot that was going on exterior to this. And then you have this armor who was sort of relatively new and, and green and protocols, which were apparently not being followed on the set. When you have someone like Alec Baldwin, who's obviously like a very seasoned actor, there were clearly failures who occurred here and resulted in this woman's life being lost. So I'll give you my take. Some of this is probably controversial, although I don't know. But I blame more the person whose job it was to make sure the, the gun was the safe. Guns. Mm-hmm. I think they are way more culpable than Alec Baldwin. And I, by the way, I like, I hate Alec Baldwin. He annoys me. And I can't really put it <laughs> on why. Like, I think he's got a really high opinion of himself. And I don't think he's yeah. all that special. He's kind of annoying, if anything. So I don't like him. But I definitely blame the other person more. Do you agree with that? I do. Let me okay. read to you what they say, uh, the, the affidavits from the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office, the sort of sequence of events. Uh Mr. Halls, that's the producer who pled guilty to like negligent handling of a weapon, took one of three prop guns laid down on a rolling cart, handed it to Mr. Baldwin to film the scene. Mr. Halls yelled, cold gun, indicating the firearm did not have live rounds. Mr. Baldwin took the gun and fired it, one of the affidavits said. Investigators have also questioned uh, the armorer, Ms. Gutierrez-Reed's actions as the person in charge of guns and ammunition on set. So the producer picks it up, says cold gun, hands it to Alec Baldwin. So he might even be somewhat responsible. But again, I still put it more on the person whose job it was. Yeah. Well, because the, the, the question still remains. This is the part that we still really haven't gotten to the bottom of. How the hell did this gun get on the set to start with? I mean, this should never have been there. Bullets, the, like this live rounds, should never. Of course, yeah. I have mean, that goes without saying. Yeah, so, so you're saying like, it maybe was on purpose. 
I'm not saying maybe it's on purpose. I, I genuinely you don't, just don't know. know. You're just confused. How the hell did it happen? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if in Hollywood, sometimes they use real guns as prop guns. That it's not just like a fake gun is like literally fake. You know what I'm saying? Like you got a real gun, you put a blank round in it. To have live rounds on set, though, like that never should have happened. Well, yeah, it did though, you know? So, like, so do you support charges so against Baldwin at so, all? Because the protocol apparently, I'm from digging back and when we covered this extensively, like he did also did not follow protocol. Every person in the chain is supposed to check that gun before you do anything. But again, from his perspective, he has zero reason to believe that this gun is loaded and that it's a real gun and that it's going to kill somebody. So again, I blame the person whose job it was to check the thing before mm -hmm. a hell of a lot more than I blame him. So this, this is, it's a very, very difficult question for this simple reason. Do you evaluate a crime based on the harm done to the victim mm -hmm. or do you evaluate it based on the intent right. or do you have some mix of the two? Well, because I don't think, I mean, the fact that it was involuntary manslaughter means there was no intent. I understand right? that. But then I guess what I'm asking is, I guess I'm, I'm questioning what the punishment really should be for something like involuntary manslaughter. Because from my perspective, if you can really prove beyond any reasonable doubt that the person did not have malintent, they weren't trying to commit a crime, and also they didn't act like with reckless abandon. Yeah. Then I, I'm like, I can see the perspective, like, why don't punish them at all? Because you're, if anything, you're taking a situation where there's a victim and you're just creating a new victim because there's something that's unjust about taking somebody who didn't have malintent, didn't want to do anything wrong, acted in a normal way, and some freak occurrence happens, and as a result of that, there's a dead body. Like, you're trying to pin it on somebody where there is no there there. So part of me believes, like, this, like the way we evaluate crimes is psycho. Now, I understand, though, the reason why it's hard to codify what I just described into law is because you can get situations where people fudge the facts or fudge the narrative where it's a case where the person did want to kill them, but they make it look like, no, total mistake, bro. And then it's like, there's no punishment at all. And then well, that that's a problem, right? Or someone, I mean, a classic example, like a drunk driver, right? Where you're acting- Yeah, but see, that's different than you, what I was describing. But I'm just giving the example of like, you, I mean, you're already committing a, a low-level crime by driving drunk, right? But you're acting with such negligence that, no, did you want to kill the person? But you did because of your actions. See, that's and different. So that's the idea of involuntary manslaughter. The, the definition I have here is a killing that results either from recklessness or criminal negligence or from the commission of a low-level criminal act such as a misdemeanor. But that's what I'm saying. I don't know if Alec Baldwin meets don't that Don't think it rises line. to the level of recklessness. It's not his job negligence. to check the gun. He's just it, doing his job. It was his job to check the gun, though. There were, somebody's job the, is literally to just check the gun right. and then it gets to him and he's going to think like, I'm just doing my job here. But the argument is everybody needs to every check it. Every person in the chain, it is their job to check the gun. It, like, okay, does he even know that? Because if I'm an actor and somebody hands me a gun and they're like, cold gun, and it already went through two different people before it got to me and I pull the trigger and I kill somebody, yeah. I'm immediately being like, are you kidding me? Right. I'm responsible for this? Apparently, they go through, supposed to go through, like, rigorous protocol training to, you know, of exactly how this is all supposed to go with an understanding that, yeah, every person in the chain is supposed to do those checks. Now, I have no idea and no insight into Hollywood culture to know how closely that is typically followed because that would be the other question is, like, okay, if it, if they really are very consistent about this and he just sort of, like, recklessly blew it off, when normally people really are sticklers for every single person in the chain 
checks that the the gun is safe and it's a cold gun, um, you know, versus like if the the general being as we just sort of assume and the, we've assumed the armor has got it, like those sorts of details I think would matter in terms of the charge. But yeah, I could see if this is genuinely like this is your job, part of your job is to double check the gun. Every person in the chain is responsible for making sure this is safe and this happens. Like he's not, he he's not get he he has some culpability. Here's why I struggle with that. Some there is somebody's actual job on that set who, who they are supposed to handle the props and get them ready. And so, you so that's would, their whole freaking right. job description. So and then you, you have Alec support, Baldwin, his main job is acting. So you would support involuntary manslaughter charges for the armorer, but not for Alec Baldwin. I don't know what I support. I mean, yes, I think there's definitely culpability among the the armor. The armor. Um, I think potentially the guy who screamed out cold gun, because I mean, at that point, he's just that is kind of negligent because you're actually saying it's the opposite of what it when is. You so didn't clearly check. you didn't yeah. check and then you lie about it. So for those two, definitely for the armor, for the other guy, probably two, even though I think it's slightly different. But yes, for that guy too, probably. Alec Baldwin, I just don't know. But it's this isn't really about Alec Baldwin, I guess, is my point, because I've always been fascinated by this question around manslaughter because again, it's like you gave the example, of like the drunk driving thing. Yeah. Right. And on that one, I totally agree. That should be illegal. You should get locked up for that for some amount of time because right. there is something that you did, which I actually think is like, you assume a certain amount of risk. If you're getting into a car and you're super intoxicated and you know, one of the consequences of that could be, there could be some sort of accident. You could fuck up and you could kill somebody. Right. And so in that instance, I see it. I'm like, I get it. That to me sounds like involuntary manslaughter. Right. But with the Alec Baldwin case, I'm just struggling. I'm struggling for the simple reason. If I'm trying to put myself in his shoes, right? Would I have checked that gun? I don't know if I would have. Yeah. Because I'm thinking I'm an actor. There's there's never a loaded gun on a set of a movie. Like, what are we talking about? It's more likely for water to come out of this thing than it is for a bullet to come out of this thing. And so I could easily see myself in his shoes and then that happens and the whole world thinks I'm, I'm the bad guy and I did something wrong. And it's like, well, hold on here. So I, you know, I could understand him feeling to some extent, even though he's a massive prick, him feeling like I'm kind of being victimized right now. Cause like there was no malintent whatsoever at all in any way, shape or form. And so I struggle with that. Cause to me, a big thing about laws and justice is intent. That's a big part of it to me. Yeah. Um, it, it, it may be one of the biggest parts of it. And, yeah. Well, and so I just, I don't know what the punishment should be when it's not only involuntary manslaughter, but it's like, this dude really did not know in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not even sure I buy that, like, he actually was supposed to do X, Y, and Z. I, I think it's pretty clear that he was. You know, if you're following the protocol by the book, he was supposed to check. There's also a piece here that creates more question marks in my mind about the fact that, you know, he's saying he didn't pull the trigger. That is bullshit. Obviously, he's lying. Bullshit. That's, that's a lie. <laughs> and, and that's so annoying that he's lying about it that. It makes me wonder if there aren't other facts that we don't know about that are also not good for from him. him or for not others good or for him not good for him yeah for them to I'm, lead to well, these sort Chris, of charges there's a million stories of him being like an abusive douche you know what i mean yeah wasn't, wasn't there a voicemail that came out of him screaming at his daughter and calling her a whore and all sorts of stuff and cursing at her it may have been him it may have been one of the other bald ones but it may have been him i mean <laughs> the guy's not a good guy the guy's a really terrible guy and by the way his trump impression is massively overrated 
Uh, Anthony Atomanic, uh, I think his name is, he's got a way better Trump impression. And the fact that Alec Baldwin got all the praise over it kind of annoyed me to no end at the time. I really hate the guy, but I also, in this sense, I sort of feel from, I guess I'm just torn on the question of involuntary manslaughter when there is not only no intent, but maybe even potentially not that much negligence either. You know what I mean? If there's negligence and something happens, then I get it. Like, should be a crime and should spend time on bars. If there's no intent and really arguable, if there's even negligence there, that's a little different to me. So I'm just torn on, because part of me wants to, uh, you know, evaluate a crime on the basis of the harm done to the victims. Part yeah. of it, because it's like, you want some sort of semblance of justice for this person's family or whatever. Part of me also, though, wants to evaluate it based on the intent of the person who did whatever they did. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it, you and I know this when when we're parenting and if one of the kids does something and it's a total accident, but it ends up hurting the other kid, what do you do? You don't necessarily punish them. You know, you might say, hey, say sorry or whatever, but it's not like go to your room. It's it's like the, the gradations are so important when yeah, you talk but, about criminal right. justice. But to use a parenting example, if the kid was being insane and reckless and then accidentally hurts the other one. But I agree with you. Then there's a punishment. But I guess our core disagreement here yeah. is that I'm not sure what he did was reckless. Yeah. Regardless of what the rules on paper say about the time this fake gun gets to him, when it's supposed to go through two other people before it gets to him. Let me give you just the last few details here. Uh, so in April, New Mexico's... Uh, Occupational Health and Safety Bureau said the film's producers knew that firearm safety procedures were not being followed and they failed to intervene. Um, they also found that uh, the, one of the producers, Mr. Halls, did not consult with the armor before handing the gun to Mr. Baldwin. That goes to your point of like the one who yelled out cold gun without checking and you didn't coordinate. That seems like a massive issue. Workplace Safety Agency imposes civil penalty of nearly $137,000 maximum fine allowed under state law because of the negligent handling. Um, in October, Mr. Baldwin and the Rust production team reached a settlement with uh, the the woman who was killed with her family in a wrongful death lawsuit. We don't know what the terms of that settlement were. Uh, was Alec Baldwin has filed a lawsuit against several Rust crew members, including the armor and that producer said cold gun. Um, that lawsuit says the crew members were negligent in their duties to protect the cast and the crew, including giving Mr. Baldwin a loaded gun. And in response, the armorer said Mr. Baldwin is the only one responsible for this tragedy. No, no, uh, no, that, no, no, yeah, no, that seems no, 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 no like, what's he actually looking the at? The max is 18 months. The max is 18 months. Yeah. See, now after all this whole conversation, now I feel like I can see that. Maximum, you know, but, it's a fourth degree felony, carries a maximum sentence of 18 months in prison, which, I mean, I think, who knows? You think it's fair? Do I think that's fair? I mean, I'm kind of like you. I'm, I'm torn because I feel like I don't know all the facts. You know, I don't know how much these protocols are really followed. I don't know how much of the burden of responsibility is really on the actor typically in these situations. So it's, I do feel like it's kind of, it's a tough one to say. Yeah. And it's again, it, if intent is king and it oftentimes is, then it's just hard to look at a situation like that and be like. Yeah. But I mean, that's the whole purpose of involuntary manslaughter though. Is to I say there's that. no intent. I understand that. But like, again, we didn't mean to hurt anybody, but we did something wrong. And so somebody got hurt. There's got to be some sort of consequence for that. You're driving down the street going a reasonable speed. Yeah. 20-year-old kid who's drunk sprints out to the middle of the street. You run over him. He dies. What should happen? 
I, I mean, in that, in, I don't think that that should be a charge. But this, this is what I'm trying to say is like, but, I don't think he acted reckless. I don't think he acted necessarily negligent. I but think like, that whatever's on paper is kind of bullshit and the people whose job it is to actually check that thing is their goddamn job to but check that I thing. Think, I think a more accurate analogy would be, okay, I'm, being drunk. I'm driving Yeah, down you're the driving drunk. Not I'm driving drunk even. There's a stop sign that everybody rolls through all the time. Yeah, I and don't I think do it's that and hard it. and fast of a, no, I don't agree with that. I just think that's a little too, like, you know, you're looking at something that it says on paper, but like, it, to me, it's like, you know, when I used to work at the car dealership and there'd be some rule that is like nobody even knows about the rule never mind follow it listen again i'm not like well versed in the activities on hollywood sets but i do know that after this happened there were a bunch of actors who came out and were decrying the protocols that were followed that were saying as an actor personally myself you would always check um, and yeah, was, uh, Alec Baldwin is not new to this game. I mean, this isn't his first time being on a, a film set. It's not even his first time, you know, handling guns on a film set. So I think there's a real argument that, you know, you were negligent and not following the protocol. You didn't check. It was your job as, to check. And as a result, someone died. But as somebody who has shot guns throughout my life, my dad mm -hmm. taught me when I was a kid, right? I know you're always supposed to check, see if the gun yes. is loaded the second you get it. But yes. you don't even know if this is a real gun. My default assumption would be this isn't even a real gun. It might be a fake one. But see, that's actually that's actually a really good point because, I mean, you know, I grew up around guns too. My dad is a big gun enthusiast. And that's the first lesson you learn. Of course, is yeah. Even if the person tells and you, never, you, and you never pointed at anybody. Never ever. pointed at anybody. It's always pointed away. Even Let if alone it's, even pull if it the is fucking unloaded. trigger. Yeah, but again, I... So it, when you Bob think Hale, about I'm it, thinking this might be a fake gun, and it already went through two people. Yeah, but when I mean, but when you think of it from that perspective, that's not even like Hollywood set procedure. That's just like basic firearm safety that every single person who's ever dealt with a gun is like drilled into them from the beginning. He might think it's not even a firearm, though. That's the thing. Like that, that matters, doesn't it? Doesn't that matter? There's a difference between a freaking squirt gun and, a, and an actual gun. Yeah, but, I'm mean, not going to check the squirt gun. This year yeah, but I mean, clearly down. it was a real gun. So it clearly felt like a real gun. That's, so that's a glib point. We already it's know. It's not a glib point. It is a it glib point. Because you don't know in the moment. You got to go into his. It's clearly not a water gun. You got to, you have to, if you're being clearly fair, not a squirt you gun. have to try to put yourself in his position. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Which is why I think maybe involuntary manslaughter is appropriate, but a higher charge is not. What I will say is this. Look, ultimately... Um, I'm going to be torn on this. I know I'm making the argument. It sounds like I'm pro him getting off. I'm not necessarily, you know, yeah. like if it comes, if they say, okay, you end up getting six months in jail or whatever. I'll, I'll be, I'll, I mean, I see what, like I get it, right? Yeah. But it is just a tough one for me. But what I will say is this, for sure, I believe this, that company, because of the multiple layers of negligence and what ended up happening here, yeah. they should have to pay the family millions and millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. Millions of dollars. Because that, that to me seems like a, a more a closer to a semblance of justice. So if you tell me, look, he goes to prison, um, but they don't get any money from the company, yeah, or he doesn't go to prison, but they get a lot of money from the company. I'm going, they get a lot I, of money I, from the I company. I agree with that. I mean, there was uh, some sort of a settlement that was already reached with the production company and the um Do we family. do we know the number? We don't know the number. Okay. Um, right. But yeah, terms of the settlement were not disclosed, but they are getting some money. And I also agree with your point. The dude who handed the gun and said, cold gun, without checking, the assistant director, who is pleading guilty to a lesser charge to just negligent use of deadly weapon, that seems like he's kind of getting off he's easy. He's getting off easy, yeah. In in the hierarchy of who's guilty here, I go armorer first, that guy second, Alec Baldwin third. I can conceive of a world where they all get 
some punishment and yeah. I can live with it. But I would much rather have, most importantly, that family get p- 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 paid, son, yeah. because they deserve it. Agreed. So anyway. Agree with that. All right, guys, there you have it. Long intro, but it was worth it. It was yeah, fun. I enjoyed interesting that. Interesting one to dig into. Let's uh, dive into our conversation here with Lonerbox. Welcome, uh, Lonerbox. It's great having you here. And uh, just like I was telling you off air, I've become uh, quite a fan of your videos. I feel like uh, just just to name a few here, the abortion video that you did was phenomenal because I've never seen anybody treat the issue with such nuance and, and, and clarity. So I highly recommend everybody go check that video out. I think I tweeted it a while back, but just type in loner box abortion. That video will come up. Um, Crystal was talking about the amazing Jordan Peterson you did. So just to catch everybody up, there was a very famous tweet, Jordan Peterson going after a model who's like a little overweight. I don't remember. Yumi something is her name, I believe. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, it's on the cover, Sports yeah. Illustrated in bathing suit. And he basically made this argument of like, this is objectively not beautiful. And, um, you know, that led to backlash. And I feel like you really dove in the most out of anybody I've ever seen in explaining why that tweet makes zero sense. So uh, and then also you did great stuff on like deplatforming. Does it work? Does it not work? What are the ups? What are the downs, et cetera? So I guess let's just start since we were talking about this off air a little bit. Let's just start with the the, um, Jordan Peterson and objective beauty standards thing, because um, I think we're mostly in agreement, but I might have some slight disagreements. So walk everybody through, you know, just like the gist of your response video and, and what your take on it is uh, when it comes to objective beauty standards versus how subjective it is versus the history of how we interpret it and stuff like that. So I think what he did was, yeah, there was a plus size model on uh, Sports Illustrated and he just tweeted out that it was like, I can't remember what he said, but something like woke terrorism or some you know, <laughs> words, uh, about why they're like forcing people to believe that that's what's that uh, this should be beautiful, but it definitely isn't. And no, no, like authoritarian tolerance, woke, whatever is going to change. Yeah, that. And I was just I, like, I have the actually, tweet. Um, he says, sorry, not beautiful. And no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it's such a strange thing to say for someone who likes to, you know, he's quite like a conservative guy. So he probably has a lot of like uh, reverence for the past and everything. And it, it wasn't even that long ago where, especially like in European history, where the standard for beauty was like big girls, like people liked them thick, you know, that was just how it was. Um, actually, um, it was almost the other way around where being too skinny was kind of like a, a sign that you were um like lacking or maybe even that you were poor so uh yeah i just thought i'd go a little bit far into the kind of origins of where beauty standards kind of come from and where they change i read a really good book called uh, fearing the black body and how there's actually like a kind of overlap between um like old school uh racism and uh beauty standards as well mm-hmm. in conjunction with like the protestant reformation so uh yeah i just thought um it's it's just such a weird thing cuz obviously like what we've considered attractive changes all the time, even like within our lifetimes. Um, it, that's well, so, that's exactly yeah. right. That's the point I was just going to make is like Crystal and I remember, you know, when we were younger, I'm not sure how old you are, but um, you know, when I was younger, it was like the Pamela Anderson body was viewed as like the ideal body, which is like very skinny, almost like kind of like narrow hips too, but like giant tits. Yeah. It was the Victoria's secret mm-hmm. model. Right. Look, where it's like, yeah, skinny, but big boobs. Right. And then at some point, you know, uh, you could argue like Kim Kardashian was sort of at the head of this. Mm -hmm. It was like, no, actually, we want women with big hips and a big ass. And, you know, you go back and look at the old James Bond movies and like the the women who were who he was attracted to were not 
they they were kind of like you know they had a little bit of weight in in the midsection too. So like throughout history, it, even modern history, this has changed massively. So um, for him to not know that or, or like, does he sincerely believe that whatever his subjective standards are, are somehow like actually objective? Because that strikes me as so absurd. I think the thing is, is that like, I, I never try, when I talk about people like Jordan Peterson, I never try to be like, no matter what they're saying, I never try to think he must just be like insanely stupid. I don't like going down that way because he's right. obviously like qualified as a psychologist and he actually did used to have quite a good reputation in psychology. He wasn't just like some average uh, teacher or anything. Um, like his peer-reviewed work actually was quite popular. But um, I think the problem is, is that people get this idea of like, if you're good at one thing, you can just be good at everything. And the problem with being like a public figure who maybe starts by giving some probably not that bad self-help advice, is that people want answers for you from you for, for everything. And I guess that plus like a bit of like a, a huge like undue confidence. And then he just starts to delve into all these spaces where he has no place saying like anything that he's saying. And then, yeah, um, and I think even in that tweet, he cited a couple of studies that were supposed to prove his point, but they were all to do with like faces like the fact that people like symmetrical faces it had nothing to do with the sizes of people's bodies um so yeah it's just really kind of seeing that like someone who clearly knows how to do like academic work and all that just going down this complete like pseudo intellectual route because i guess that's kind of like the life that chose him you know yeah well his view on this is also like formed and shaped by his own by his age. I mean, it has doesn't even keep up right. with, like you're saying, the fact that even over the past number of years, beauty standards have evolved where people would be like, no, we disagree with you that just like skinny is better at all times in all ways. Um, one of the things that you track in that video is where that initial notion, where that initial movement from like, you know, bigger women being the thing and a sign of like prosperity and health and probably fertility and whatever um, else sort of switches over to the more modern embodiment of like, no, the thing is to be uh, rail thin. What do you attribute that initial shift to? Um, I think the first kind of big sign you see of it is uh, 16th and 17th century with Protestantism, because uh, like one of the big things that happened with the Protestant Reformation was that uh, the uh, a lot of what they criticized about the church was that they uh, encouraged a lot of what they thought was sinful behavior, like uh, gluttony and uh, like... Uh, lots of rest days because I think uh, Protestantism was really famous for turning loads and loads of holidays into working days. Um, that's why the, the first capitalist countries that were the most successful were the Protestant ones because people like it was just more culturally uh, acceptable to demand people to work a lot. And then uh, woven into that was the idea that food is something that uh, slows you down. It mm. it, it takes you away from your from your duties. <laughs> so this kind of like pretty uh, gradual shift comes in for the idea that uh, like good food is actually like a kind of like, it's like a temptation. You're not really supposed to do it. And it's like, it makes you sluggish and it makes you uh, like uh, lose like sight of your your main focus. And there are all these like kind of old sermons of people actually comparing like the good cook to the devil, right? The cunning mm -hmm. cook who uh, like, and make like making you uh, gorge yourself away from like heaven and that kind of like nonsense. Mm -hmm. So wow. that's like the first time half of it. And then the second half, I guess, with uh, colonialism is uh, start, uh, started to see a lot of like uh, black women in uh, Europe, uh, mostly with mostly women. And uh, also noticing that they were they're trying to contrast black and white women in like scientific racism and like 
part of that overlap was that while white women were always seen as like disciplined and they're chaste and they're very delicate and slender as a result of like uh, just like regulating their diets. Whereas the stereotypes against black people was that they were more like animalistic, right? They were like, they were idle, they they loved sex and they loved food. So uh, what used to actually be like, because even old school, like Renaissance artists really were fascinated by black bodies because of the way that like, I guess uh, their proportions can be like, looks like naturally a little bit different. Um, but then that suddenly turns into like, this is all just like evidence of them being like inferior. So, so it almost starts like out, overlap there. it almost starts out as like a fetishization. Right. Yeah. And that gets mm. turned into like a, a caricature or like a um, demonization but, but, of, the, of the body type. But low key or maybe even high key, you see so many examples of like these people who might parrot that line and go down that path of like, you know, these are the savages and they're the ones who also are like lusting for it. You know, it kind of reminds me of the anti-gay Republicans who get caught blowing some dude in New Jersey Turnpike bathroom or the evangelical preachers who are like preaching gayness is wrong. Like Ted Haggard. Remember Ted Haggard? He was like a, Which one a was that? televangelist guy and he was, you know, would always preach about how gayness is wrong and married people have the best sex. And then he got caught in a hotel doing crystal meth off a gay hooker's ass. Blech. Like this is it, it, anyway, there's there's a whole strong tinge of that to me. <laughs> you but got a, you got a. Um, um, Current example, potentially allegations against Matt Schlapp, who's like very Catholic. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Matt Schlapp. By the way, your name, his last name, like it says it all. Schlapp. Anyway, um, so (laughs) the reason, so from my perspective, the reason why some people might like kind of fall for that Jordan Peterson line on that is because uh, attractiveness, it it is, I would argue, like largely subjective or or reliant on, on cultural forces, but there are like dashes, in my opinion, of objectivity that that can account in beauty standards. And you kind of referenced one earlier, this idea that, you know, people kind of like symmetrical faces or maybe symmetry in general. And so do you agree with me that that's one of the reasons why, you know, somebody might actually see this and go, oh, I think it sounds kind of reasonable is because um, perhaps there's some people who would argue that attractiveness is like 100% subjective, where again, my my contention is that a, a probably a majority of it is just subjective and personal taste, but there are dashes of objectivity in there. Would you agree? Yeah, no, like it's, it's, it's almost definite that like we naturally like symmetrical faces. Like, yeah. And just for like a general health thing as well, like obviously we know now that being like uh, overweight to a certain point is just worse for you. Like we, on right, average. Yeah. So yeah, there is definitely like, um, there, there is that kind of thing, but it's always just like, it's, it's when people kind of lose sight of that and, start to take it down a path where it's just like, I guess, um, I mean, it's still probably a problem right now is like people pursuing to be like unreasonably uh, skinny and uh, like they're, so the, yeah, it's it's kind of difficult to disentangle that because the fact that there is some objectivity behind it, but saying the idea that like being like a little bit plus size is like, just can't be beautiful is yeah, that's where maybe it gets a little bit lost in the sauce of that. Yeah, not to, I mean, from a like, facial symmetry or perspective or whatever. This woman is clearly, I think most people would say, a very beautiful woman. Um, But it is difficult on an individual basis to be able to separate out, like, what part of my reaction to this individual is, like, cultural and context and my own personal taste versus any piece of it that might be objective. Yeah, um, like, I do think... I don't really see it that often because I, I just, I don't, I'm too, like, I'm too much of a boy to care that much about, like, uh, like uh, the way beauty standards kind of move around, but, or, like, especially with fashion and all that. But I guess um, 
there is maybe like a thing with like body positivity that maybe does kind of try to uh, maybe glorify uh, just like kind of a kind of an unhealthy level of um, like weight gain, which is probably like I guess pendulums always swing too far in either way, right? Um, but yeah, like it's just kind of like I was more I was more mostly interested in like recognizing that a lot of even the people back in the day who uh believed in like having a healthy uh body size, like most of them were just kind of there because they were lucky, right? Like even uh Kellogg, who I uh, spoke about who came up with the you know cereals, uh he um he had some like insane ideas about how to be healthy. One of them was like an enema an enema machine that would just like pump like gallons of water up your ass to like make you more healthy and like and then they would like and you'd I bring mean, a yogurt you, the other way have you tried it so, um, do, you, do you know it doesn't work <laughs> i can't knock it until i've tried it okay but i'm just taking a guess you next, know? next video I'm calling next bs video. that's a fetish of his i'm calling bs he's like yeah this helps you with your health bro that's what it is <laughs> um yeah so on the body positivity point see now we're getting into the real juicy stuff i like this so on the body positivity stuff I, I tend to agree with you. Crystal and I have had this conversation before, but like, so you'll see examples of like Yumi, whatever her name is. Who yeah. is and I look at that and I go, I totally get it. That makes perfect sense. Like I, I understand her being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Um, and, you know, admittedly from back in the day when it was the Victoria's Secret show and you had these women who were all like over six feet tall and they're like rail thin and they look like emaciated, like they're anorexic or bulimic. I look at that and I go, I don't think that's really promoting the most positive body image for for young girls and if anything like you said they're like swinging the pendulum too far in that direction but like i do agree that when you look at um you know an ad or you look at models and then they'll throw like a morbidly obese person on there i don't i don't like that i I, i'm uncomfortable with that Mm. for for the same reason i'm uncomfortable with the like super anorexically thin person and, and, yeah. and I argued, remember, uh, <laughs> I argued with Ella about this. Ella yeah. and I were going back and forth this on this. My 14 year old dog. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like my take was there, there should be a range of different model. I'm not claim. I'm not making the Jordan Peterson claim of like, there's objectively beautiful. And then there's not objectively beautiful. No, I'm not making that claim. I'm making the claim. There's a range of that, which is acceptable and healthy within the bounds of reason that could be put up as models or, or ideal. Her counterpoint, Ella's counterpoint was like, yeah, but there are women who exist who are morbidly obese and they want to wear the clothes too. And so you want to put somebody up there who can show Shows the clothes for that person. look like on but, person who looks like me. But then you get into the, into the question of like, well, what is a quote unquote model then? Like, what's the purpose of the model? Is it just to model the clothes or is it also like, hey, this is, this is occupying a position where you're going to be some sort of a standard bear for, for people and that they want to aspire to that. You know what I mean? Well, Loner Box, you used a good word, which is glorify. I think there's mm-hmm. maybe a line between uh, acceptab- acceptance, like these are bodied bodies that exist. Yeah, nobody's shame, yeah, shame no, overweight people. No, I'm not in favor of shaming overweight right. people. It doesn't even work. So and what's the point of doing like it? there's also a practical perspective that my very intelligent daughter Ella was very offering of like, hey, if I'm shopping online and I'm this size, I want to be able to see what this clothing piece looks like on somebody my size versus somebody who's a double zero and like, you know, freakishly thin. There's another layer that I think you both are pointing to of like actually painting this as some sort of an ideal, which- Or just lying, lying about the nature of it. Like you said, there are health problems if you get to a certain size where it's like, don't pretend like there's not. Don't say, like, remember that thing you and Sagar covered where it was like, actually, you eat any food you want. That's totally fine. Right. I mean, when you get to the point of like actually lying about medical facts, that's 
obviously I have an issue with that. There was there was a woman who was paid by, I don't know, it was like, you know, some soda company or Kellogg's or something like that. And she was out there saying that telling you nutrition facts was basically racist. Yeah, like and, what? Yeah, I mean, it was real stretch of social justice language, et cetera. So obviously that's over the line. But I don't know. I just get irritated with this knee-jerk reaction against any portrayal of a overweight woman doing anything in the world like this is there's some huge conspiracy when none of these concerns get expressed when it is a woman who's too skinny and when there are like health, <laughs> health concerns on the other side. So I feel like moving the needle more in favor of acceptability or even quote unquote glorification, like I prefer that to the way that things were previously. Yeah, like, um, I got the thing with like people doing obese modeling is like, I, I yeah, I, I could totally see the purpose in it because I think the problem with people with obesity is that I think is it not like over 90% of people who are obese are just like they're just going to be like that forever. Like, the, the like the chances yes. of them ever like getting back down to is like really, really low, yes, because of all the you know, there's so many different once your body gets a bit of fat on it, it holds on to it. So, um, yeah, I get that, but yeah, it, it just gets really, um, it get it does get a bit difficult when people lose sight of the fact that like generally speak like you don't want to be obese like there's not really any good reason for pursuing that or like you want to like you would there's actually good reasons for trying to avoid it as well um i don't really know what the answers to that are like um i know in the uk they experimented with uh sugar taxes i don't know how successful they've been but i think they were fairly popular um but yeah like obviously we have uh yeah we do have problems with that kind of going the other way especially because people don't have as much time to learn how to uh, cook properly or people uh, there's just not like the education around that stuff isn't very good and you're, it's very difficult competing with the kind of like the uh, profit incentive of it which is that uh, you know three of the uh, cheapest and most addictive or pleasing ingredients are what like salt sugar and fat um, so if you're a corporation and you want to make the most money you're just going to ram as much of that into your food as possible because that's um yeah it's cheap and it's addictive yeah so, these things are also uh, yeah. a lot of them massively subsidized like corn for example massively right subsidized. yeah that's true and, and you go to the middle of the grocery store all the processed food is like a million different ways of recombinating is that a word no. recombining corn that's closer yes <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you know, and then you have, uh, there was a thread that went viral recently from a dude who used to work for Coca-Cola. We had him on Breaking Points, who was like, we ran this playbook basically to like get the government to lie to you about how damaging sugar actually is. And then they also would have this playbook of like- Demonizing going, fat. Of going to the NAACP and, you know, partnering with them to convince them that it was like racist to go after sodas or sugar or whatever. And so not only is the system effectively rigged against you, not only are cities and towns designed so that like you never have to walk anywhere and everything is just focused on cars, but then you also have these like corrupt efforts to directly lie to the public about they what did. nutrition actually entails and what healthy eating might actually look like. They made the boogeyman fat. You know, when I was a kid, I remember this. They would always talk about like, and it kind of, it sounds intuitively true. So I get why people would fall for it. This idea of like, well, if you eat too much fat, it will make you fat. So don't eat the fat, like try to avoid the fat. But there was this glorification of carb, the high carb diet, high sugar diet. And like, that was the problem. And that's what they were, they were actively like trying to push that. But there's a more interesting question in here because, and again, you and I have talked about this before. I get, I do get triggered by the people who act like, 
for for somebody who's overweight, like pfft, just eat less and lose weight, bro. Like just eat less exercise, and that's like the end of the like. Oh, really? That's a- oh, I, they didn't know that. They didn't know that they're supposed to eat less and work out. And so, it, from my perspective, and obviously this is I'm just guessing here, but I always felt like. Because I've seen some very overweight. I've had one of my closest friends when I was younger was very overweight from a very, very young age. And I got the sense that if I ate and he ate the exact same thing every day for our entire lives, there would still be a difference of like 60 pounds there. They would probably weigh less than they do, but it wouldn't be night and day where it's like, oh, you know, they're they're skinny or whatever. So I get the sense that there's a, a genetic component and I get kind of triggered when people overlook that and just sort of bark like, bro, just work out and eat better. I, first of all, like uh, you, you Americans have a huge problem. Like I've, I've been, there, I've been to the States a few times. And when I was in Austin, I was staying in a hotel, like maybe a mile and a half out of the, uh, the city. And I asked for directions for how to get there. It was like, you know, just one turn and one turn along a really long road. And they were just like, they couldn't let it go that I just wanted to walk. They were like, properly arguing with me about why I should get a taxi or something like that. And like the idea of walking at like for any distance that was just like baffling to them. And then um, even a few times, like uh, people would stop, uh, would like slow down their cars next to me and ask me if I needed a ride anywhere when they saw me walking for a while. And like one of them was like this guy in like a, like a white van, like on a Confederacy flags and all that. I was like, is this guy trying to kill me? But like, no, looking back, he probably just like, he couldn't bear the thought of a fellow human <laughs> having to walk somewhere for 10 minutes. Like it was really bizarre. But um, I don't know if it's like that. I imagine it's like that everywhere. But like over here, I mean, uh, like our cities are quite compact and our public transport system is really good. And like I've, so you can walk like, quite a lot and I feel like that makes like a fair difference like I still don't need to I don't even need to I've, I'm 31 and I haven't learned to drive yet like I don't need to wow. um, like yeah um, uh, but like yeah I think it does get difficult because uh, I think the problem with like recognizing that being obese is like a bad thing makes kind of people go a bit like the anxiety about being overweight still hasn't really gone away and it's not and it, it, especially across racial groups, it is kind of different. Like if you're Asian and you've got the same BMI as a white person, you're going to be like almost twice as likely to get diabetes. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're black, you can actually be healthy with a much with a higher BMI than a white person. Mm-hmm. So there are like some issues with that. And that used to get overlooked by healthcare professionals for a really long time. And they would deny treatment based on stuff like that as well. Um, or they would like overcharge or however it used to work. Um it's yeah. It's it's also like competing with like the bodybuilder guys, like just like go to the gym and uh, eat less. But it's like you know what you guys are doing isn't that healthy either. You know, like trying to get that. That is so true. Like, lean, fizzled, whatever. Yeah, like and and an honest person like that will tell you it's not healthy. Yeah. And and frequently taking a bunch of like drugs and steroids and whatever. Yeah, but even that look too. Even if you don't go to that level, like I used to work out all the time in college and and just after college, and I kind of started probably like late high school. And yeah, to your point, it is not healthy. Like I was taking, I was drinking these pre-workout drinks, which is basically like legal crack, right? Like it's a massive upper that gets your blood pumping. And sometimes you drink it and your body's tingling all over. And you're like, this is probably good, bro. There's no problem with this. Like this is healthy. So you do that, which God only knows what it's doing to your liver, your kidneys or whatever, the rest of the systems of your body and certainly your mental state, because you probably crash later on and you feel terrible later on. So you're taking a, a drug to before the workout. And then after the workout, you drink this like highly processed protein shake which de- destroying your gut. I mean, I got horror stories from my buddy who used to have those. He was lactose intolerant, I guess, oh, and did, didn't realize it for a hot minute. And goddamn, oh. you don't want to be anywhere <laughs> around this dude after he drank one of those things. But then the other thing is, like I took the supplement creatine too. 
Yeah. Which also, you know, makes you, they say it makes you stronger or whatever. Recover I'm sure there's some, right. yeah, recover faster. I'm sure there's an element of truth to that, but also it like kind of bloats you and fills you with water weight and stuff. And like, I look back at, you know, what I was doing then and it's like, yeah, I was eating a little better. Like I really, I tried to do like more of like keto than anything else, but it definitely wasn't healthy. And also it was totally vanity driven, which a lot of people who work out, it really is just vanity driven. It's not actually to be healthy. And so like, you know, I, I was the classic asshole who did like, I'm going to do uh, I'll do arm day. Chest day, maybe back day sometimes, but definitely not leg day. <laughs> so I was like the chicken leg guy. So yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, I was an elite swimmer and that's more healthy. My, yeah, but my body paid the price. I mean, shoulders, knees. And then what after that, when I got into like a CrossFit type thing, fucked up my back. So yes, you did. There, yeah. There are definitely downsides here. I mean, I guess to, to kind of wrap this up, like when I look at the American system, what is profitable? feeding us a bunch of crap and then selling us like a pill or a surgery to try to fix it. And true, but lo and behold, that's what we, that's exactly what we have. I like pills though. So I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't be smirch pills. They're, they're glorious anyway. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, deplatforming and free speech. Cause you, um, you did a really, really phenomenal video on that video on that. So, I mean, I've always referred to myself as a free speech absolutist, uh, but now understanding that, you know, and I've heard many people make this point, I do think it's kind of true when you get into the weeds. Um, nobody's really a quote-unquote free speech absolutist because everybody's like, yeah, I'm that, but then it's like, well, here are my exceptions. Okay, but if there are exceptions, then you're kind of admitting that you're not really a free speech absolutist. So I heard one of the guys on the Vanguard show made a good point. He said, I'm a free speech maximalist, not a free speech absolutist. So it's like one degree down where you're acknowledging the nuance and the things. Yeah. And I think so. I like that. I'll refer to myself as that from now on. But so when I think of like um, Twitter, for example, an argument I've made is I do think it should be basically regulated like a public utility. So you expand First Amendment free speech protections. Um, And I understand it's a private company. That's not the way it works. But I'm saying if we change the law, we could make it uh, a public utility and make it officially like the public town square. But then there's still the list of things where it's like, well, this is not allowed. Then you get into a deeper conversation of like, so what are we talking about? Like legal ramifications for these things? Or is it just like, do you have a terms of service or an arbitration process, which sort of adjudicates it and then makes decisions? Or And so I always come back to the same few things like direct threats of violence strike me as you know, you can't have that. Um, targeted harassment too, although there, there's a little gray area because what some people might consider targeted harassment is not what somebody else might consider targeted harassment. Um, doxing, I actually fully understand, but you know, the definition of doxing as I see it is like releasing private information with malintent. So like, I feel like that part is kind of important. Assassin- um, assassination coordinates. Assassination coordinates, yeah, Elon. So in other words, that <laughs> doesn't file. I mean, it's literally public, <laughs> that stuff. But anyway, uh, and then also, yeah, I could see an argument for like, spam just because it's unauthentic by its very nature and like it's almost meant to destroy the free speech of everybody else you know what yeah, i mean yeah drawn on so, everything else yeah so um so anyway those are like a handful of things that i look at i'm like these things shouldn't be allowed number one what do you think of the way i conceptualize this and then number two i know you really thought this issue through uh deeply so tell me what kind of your ideal approach would be Oh, ideal approach. I, I I think a really important thing is to uh, kind of like separate uh, like sh- people sharing ideas with uh, using speech for uh, more like active like political ends. So like I think there should definitely be like, it's a really strange thing to phrase, but like I think there should really be like a, a few safe spaces in society for like just every 
insane, like horrible idea. I think universities are probably, I really like should be a place for that, even though they're kind of like the opposite these days. Um, I think the internet, like there should definitely be parts of it that I, I'm okay with some platforms deciding they want to be more uh, limited. But like, yeah, I think there should be some kind of like website, like you know, maybe like YouTube, which is just like, yeah, this is where people can say what they believe, you know? Um, I think that's like the main thing because when people talk about uh, the idea that like uh, people on the left always give is like paradox of tolerance, uh, the idea that we can't tolerate people who have intolerant beliefs because if they get power, they'll just take away everyone's free speech. Um, the problem with that is, is that like defining tolerance is really difficult, right? And even in the original essay or the paragraph where he talks about the paradox of tolerance, he even says that like intolerant beliefs are not really like they should be argued with. They should be like, um, but the problem is when people start to be so intolerant to the point that they're not really there to have a conversation anymore. They're just there to use their megaphone to like, I don't know, like blast in someone else's ear, right? To like chase other people off of a platform mm. or to like build a political party that's going to take free speech away from everyone. Um, yeah. Uh, so I I kind of thought like the one argument that I, I really like doing videos that are like, where I think both sides are kind of wrong. And I think the argument that people on the left have made for a long time about deplatforming is that it works because look at like Milo Yiannopoulos or uh, Owen Benjamin or Richard Spencer, like no one cares about these people anymore, right? Um, because they were deplatformed. De um, the problem with that is, is that if you have your town square and you have people getting deplatformed, they go to an alternative platform where they're smaller. But the problem is, is if you keep, if you're quite trigger happy with deplatforming, is you are dragging more and more people and including audience members away from the main space and into the smaller space where they are much more radical. There's a much less of a filter. People become more toxic and actually also in the real world, they're more likely to commit like acts of violence, right? Like most of these violent acts come from people who post on 8chan or like Gab and those kind of places. And I'm thinking like, there has to come a point where like, how much are you willing to grow these alternative spaces? Because I think the uh, kind of like trigger happy deplatforming that we're doing now is already starting to do that, right? Like Gab doubled in size after January 6th. Um, people like Alex Jones actually end up making more money after they were deplatformed from YouTube. Uh, and uh, like these, like how big do these alternative spaces become before they become a threat, right? Um, and that's, that's kind of the thing I was like mostly worried about. Um, because I don't like the idea of living in a world where eventually you've got like, uh, just two completely separate universes where no one understands each other and no one um, speaks to each other and everyone just kind of like self-reinforces to this point that um, you've just got like two groups that are like completely, they, they can't, uh, they're not compatible with each other in like, in like a democratic society. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I could I go mean, on for more, for longer, but yeah, I'll just let one of you speak. It also enables their sort of like fantasies about how they're like dangerous to the establishment, et cetera. I mean, I'm thinking of like Andrew Tate saying like, oh, the Matrix <laughs> is coming to get me, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, dude, you are the, like, you are upholding every established cultural value. You're just doing it to the nth degree. And sex trafficking. <laughs> and, and also raping. sex trafficking <laughs> yeah. and raping, allegedly. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot with regard to Trump. Because obviously after January 6th, he gets pulled off of all the major social media platforms, including Twitter, including um, Facebook, both of which were really important to him. Facebook was really important for like fundraising and um, political organizing. Twitter was really important to him in terms of driving elite conversation. And uh, now Elon has let him back on Twitter, but he hasn't tweeted yet. And they're petitioning Facebook 
to be allowed back on there as well. And the idea is like now that he's running again, he's probably going to be back on these platforms. And I've thought a lot during the interim about putting the free speech concerns aside, what the impact of taking him off of these platforms has been. And in some ways, it's been nice. Like, you hear, heard from him less when he was over on Truth Social because a lot of elite journalists aren't there. And so he was less able to just, like, dry, obsessively drive the news conversation. But you can kind of see the impact that you're talking about because he himself, over on in the Truth Social, like, right-wing ghetto— has become more conspiratorial and more fringe in his views. Not that he wasn't already, but before that, he wasn't actively reposting Q drops and stuff like that. So you can kind of see that process you're talking about of, yeah, he's getting less attention. He's getting less retruths than he used to get over on Twitter. But the people who followed there, him there and him, he himself have become sort of a little more hardened, a little bit more radicalized. Yeah, I think for Trump, like a really good analogy is, um, I was actually going to put this in my video, but I decided that it probably needs to be like a separate thing. Um, have, you, have you guys ever heard of like the Weimar fallacy? No. No. It's like a pretty, it's like, um, so uh, I guess you know how like, you know how like everyone left or right, like will do this thing where they like to talk as if, oh, if people were, if people thought like the way I do about this issue, like we could have stopped the Nazis, right? Mm. Um, people have like all different opinions on that. And uh, there's this thing called the, like, um, I've often heard from like progressives that they'll say, um, like the problem with uh, the Weimar Republic was that they were way too liberal. They were way too progressive with free speech. And the Nazis just kind of enjoyed that, built up their movement with no restrictions and then just took power, um, which is kind of bullshit. Like the, but then the other side of it is that actually the Nazis were censored quite a lot. Like hundreds of their publications were banned. Um, Hitler was actually banned from speaking publicly in most of Germany for like uh, the late twenties. Hmm. And, uh, you know, lots of them were jailed as well for publications. Like that Der Sturmer paper was like uh, censored and taken to court at least like over 30 times. So there was lots of laws against uh, what they were doing. Um, the problem again, though, is like they weren't really like hate speech laws. Those were just laws. Against, they, were, they had a law that basically meant the government could censor you if you criticized them. So um, it wasn't really as progressive as people make it out to be. But the problem with that, like, with the other argument is that like people do this thing where they say, oh, if you ban someone or if you uh, take away someone's like freedom of speech, then they'll just go into the shadows and then reemerge like stronger than we ever imagined, like, like they're a Sith Lord or something. Um, I don't really like that either because it's like the it's not true, really yeah. comparison with Trump and like the, with the, comparison, the comparison with Trump and the Weimar is like, um, it's true that like a lot of Nazi publications were censored for a really long time and that a lot of the, their higher up people were jailed for it as well, just for like mostly like speech. Um, but the problem is, is that like most of that was in the twenties. So like when, when things got a bit easier for them in the thirties, that's when they took power. Like they weren't that popular in the mid twenties. The other problem is, is that they were quite, although they were quite harsh with like newspapers and things like that for a time, they were also like incredibly lenient because they were like, they had very conservative leanings uh, in like German courts at that time. So one of the problems was like after the beer hall putsch, when Hitler tried to like overthrow um, like part of the government in early 20s, they only gave him like a five-year sentence and he ended up serving eight months of it. Hmm. So uh, for trying to over... And this was like a, a an attempted coup that got like multiple people killed. And by the standards of that time, um, he should have actually been executed. That's what, That was like what you normally did at that time if someone tried to overthrow the government, you just killed them. Or um, 
at least like life in jail. And if not even that, there's, they can never run for office again. But the problem there is like, the focus was on speech, but like the problem wasn't actually the speech and like the thoughts they were sharing. It was that it was the it was the the like the actual action that they were doing. They were they were trying to use their the speech was just like a means to an end, right? Yeah, uh, and I think that's where things get often very confused. Is like the problem with someone like Trump isn't so much that he's allowed to speak. The problem is that he might get to run for office again after he tried to overthrow the government. You know, um, right? That's the bigger problem. Uh, and, and also he's like, this is a point that I've never seen anybody on the right honestly grapple with, which is that he postures like he's super pro free speech, but he's not at all. I mean, he very famously advocated for giving people a year in jail for burning the flag when he was president. I mean, this is like, that's standard, you know, Supreme Court case law. Even Justice Antonin Scalia was like, I might not like it if you burn the flag, but this is definitely First Amendment protected speech. Trump sued Bill Maher over a joke when Bill compared uh, Trump to, he said like, you know, your dad must be an orangutan or something like that. So you got to show your birth certificate to prove he's not because that color of your hair doesn't even exist in nature except among orangutans. He got so triggered by that, he, he sued over that. that. Just recently, he tried to sue CNN for what was it, like over $400 million? Of course, that case got thrown out immediately on, you know, First Amendment grounds. So like, it's it, the way they kind of take the label of, you know, we're the crusaders for free speech versus how they act. It's it's totally night and day. But it, so in a weird way, I think I have a slightly different position that, than both of you maybe, because I do think that in like a very blunt way, deplatforming does quote unquote work. Like I am kind of swayed by the look at Milo Yiannopoulos. He was on top of the world in 2017. And then all of a sudden he got deplatformed from like everywhere. And next thing you know, he's selling these pathetic, like Virgin Mary statues on some Catholic home shopping network that seven people watch, right? Like that actually is compelling to me. Um, you know, I'm sure there are, Oh, Alex Jones, like you guys pointed out, that's another example where like he lost probably 70, 80% of his audience. I mean, now he's on some whatever, like Russian or Chinese hosted website where he does his same show and just doesn't get nearly as many views. Um, so I do think it kind of quote unquote works, but to me, that almost misses the question because it, it, it's more a question of principle. Like, is this the right thing to do in principle? Mm -hmm. And so even if it does quote unquote work, that's not enough of a justification to do it because once you give like these sort of tech overlords this power, once you grant them this power, what you find is what we learned from uh, Ari Rabinhart, Rabinhart, however you say his name anyway, he was on the Bernie Sanders campaign and he describes how when he was with the campaign, there came a day, Bernie's uh, Facebook page was blowing up absurdly. It was astronomical growth. All these people were watching this stuff. People loved it. And then one day, boom, they just shut off the growth. They completely hit a wall. And it was such a problem that the Bernie campaign and Bernie himself met with the Facebook executives and were like, what is going on here? And they didn't really get any good answers. You didn't even learn like the mechanics of how it works or how they're able to just basically press a button and shut off all your growth. And like, if you grant these people that power, the idea it's only going to be used for like, you know, forces of good, right? Like we all agree here, Trump's bad. You know, Milo was bad. Alex Jones is bad, et cetera. But it, it doesn't only work like that. And in fact, we've seen from US history that oftentimes like the people who are targeted the most by censorship advocates are people on the left, because if you're actually on the left, by your very nature, you're you're fighting for change, like you're challenging corporate rule and you're challenging the established order and you're in favor of like real reform. And so I guess to me, I do think deplatforming kind of quote unquote works, but that just misses the question because we've seen it now with Elon too. Sorry to babble on here, guys, but you see with Elon too, now, you know, he banned a whole bunch of like anti-fascist accounts. He banned some accounts that literally just tracked the far right. 
Yeah. He banned very famously, not just the, the Elon jet thing, which, you know, the people say, oh my God, that's doxing. So maybe you should have the right to ban that. Even if I grant you that, he then turns around and bans like a dozen journalists just for reporting the facts on the feud between the Elon jet account and himself. Well, one of the Twitter files that just came out showed how um, giant pharmaceutical companies were trying to collude with Twitter to censor activists who wanted the um, vaccine patents lifted so that you could have affordable generic vaccines worldwide. So yeah, once you sort of open up the the tools of censorship, they're going to be wielded against all sorts of people and causes that you don't necessarily want them to be. Yeah, um, I think uh, the thing that really, I, I try not to take a too firm a position on this is that like we haven't been deplatforming people for that long. Uh, the first right. YouTube purges were what, 2018, 19? And people will always hand wave like, oh, Gab, Cozy TV, um, all these other websites, they're all really small, right? But yeah, they're growing. Uh, what if what if we keep doing what we're doing for 10 years? And they're like, there's going to come a point and they don't need to ever become as big as YouTube, right? They just need to get big enough so that you can get a few uh, nars to do a coup. Or they just need to get big enough that they can rival like the political wing of YouTube. So um, yeah, and obviously a lot of conservatives are already kind of attracted to those alternative spaces where they can kind of let the mask off a little bit more or just show solidarity with people that they think have been treated unfairly. I think you can deplatform people, but like there just has to be a good reason for it. Um, it can't just be like, like with Andrew Tate, uh, the excuse that they gave at the time was that he was dangerous. That was the statement that was given from the social media companies. I'm like, Okay, what does that mean? Like every like everyone who just comes onto YouTube to give a political take is probably a bit dangerous, right? Like people even on my side say mad shit like all the time on the internet that is probably a little bit dangerous. Yeah, but, kill all know, landlords um, or whatever. They, the but, <laughs> yeah, um, the badly kept secret is no one actually cares about free speech because like, yeah, people on my side want to just deplatform the hell out of everyone. But like, um, for Tate, they could have given a good reason. They could have said, look, he's like, he's giving like basically instructional videos for teaching his audience members how he sex traffics. Uh, like, that's a good reason to deplatform someone, surely. Like, or um, scamming. He was like scamming. Public safety or, yeah, scamming as well. She's probably, yeah, but not just like, oh, his ideas are dangerous. That's just like, it's so vague. And if actually, if we did start banning people for like harmful or dangerous ideas, like everyone would be gone. So you know? true. Like, so true. Uh, yeah. Where do you think this instinct initially came from? Because as you point out, I mean, it's a relatively new direction. Um, and it is true to say, like, historically, the left has been a big ally of um, free speech and First Amendment protections because they knew they were the ones <laughs> who were going to be censored um, with these sorts of tools. And yet in recent years, you know, there's a lot of people who would consider themselves on the left side of the spectrum who are in favor of a lot of deplatforming and, you know, using these social media tools to try to censor more and more accounts. Do you have a sense of, like, where this started, where it came from, what are the uh, emotions that are underlying it or ideas that are underlying it? Yeah, it's, I don't think, the way we do it today is is new, but the practice is not that new at all. Um, in the 1930s, like where I live in uh, Aberdeen in Scotland, in the 1930s, uh, like the British Union of Fascists tried to uh, establish a stronghold up here. But 
uh, in response to them, uh, the local socialist and communist party would turn up to every event they ever did. They would buy up all the tickets to like public, like town hall events and just like scream over all the speeches. Uh, if they did public events, uh, actually my great, great uncle would just follow the guy around the, the leader around while he was selling newspapers and just like scream over him every time he tried to announce that he was selling papers. There were like fights. They would sometimes get like their kids to run up behind them and set their newspapers on fire. Um, there was, uh, like even when they had police protection, um, the locals would still just come and uh, like destroy their sound systems and eventually they were just chased out of the city. Hmm. So when Oswald Mosley came up here to do like a big uh, like 10 year of the party anniversary thing, uh, he couldn't even leave his hotel room for his own safety. So like... Um, that was like in the, in like 1936. So like, and that was sort of pretty anti. I don't even know if I disagree with them doing that because it's like they were a fascist, they, they weren't just speaking. They were a fascist party in like 1936 trying to make the UK or Scotland into like a, uh, like a partner state of the Nazis. So like, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, but, um, it's, the, yeah, the practice has been there for a really long time. Uh, I guess it's just because. I don't know. I just, uh, you know, everyone thinks they have the right ideas, you know, and, and I think a lot of people think that their, uh, that their opponents can't be reasoned, right? Like the whole idea about, uh, people will say about conservatives right now is that like, um, especially like the more conspiratorial ones is that they're just, they're just lost. The people will say this thing like, um, you can't reason someone out of an argument they weren't reasoned into. Um, I don't actually agree with that. I think you can adopt an unreasonable position and then just like reassess it later. It's kind of dumb. Like um, I wasn't reasoned into believing that Santa was real, but I was reasoned out of it. So right, um, yeah. I, I like yeah. I think uh, I think that's like the the yeah. I don't know. I just, I just think it's a tendency that people have always had. It's just the I guess the people with like the pushing the buttons and social media stuff right now are like the yeah, progressive sides. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that gets me too. Is like almost like the total lack of faith in any persuasive ability is at all yeah. because like okay what's a victory right like what's a victory if if i go into the lions den or you go into the lions den and we talk to somebody who totally disagrees and their audience generally disagrees what counts as a victory i mean honestly if you can move even a handful of people in an audience of like 100,000 people that is a net win because now you've made more people reassess. Sometimes they just, you know, come to your position. And usually changing your mind is also not like an instantaneous thing. I don't know why people think of it like that. It's a long process where you slowly start planting some seeds, taking them down the right path, and then eventually they end up in a place that's a hell of a lot better. And that's one of the things I pride myself on is, you know, whenever I would go to Politicon, people would come up and they'd say, oh my God, man, thank you. I love your show. And you, t- I used to listen to Ben Shapiro and then you kind of opened my eyes. Or I used to listen to Steven Crowder or back in the day, it'd be like, Stefan Molyneux or whoever. And it's like, people like have, if you actually believe in the things you're saying, have some confidence in your persuasive ability, because my argument is not that like everybody's savable. Cause I think that's the dumbest possible. Like, of course that's not the case. Of course you're not going to, what I'm going to make 100% of the population have my exact political beliefs. What a ridiculous thing. Of course not. No, the, the, the thing is you will get some, and that makes it worth it. And if you're really good at it, who knows? Maybe you can convert 20%, 30%, something like that. I mean, this is all in the realm of what's possible. When I went on the PBD podcast recently, uh, I don't know if you, Loner Box, I don't know if you know about of the PBD podcast, but it's like this sort of like 
grind set, hustle culture type right-leaning podcast. And I went in there knowing what it is, knowing the challenge I was up against, knowing it was a little bit of the lion's den. And, um, you know, if, if you go read the, the comment section in that video, you have people who were fans of them saying, you know what, I, I kind of agree more with this guy. And it's packed full of them. In fact, you, you saw them. There's like, there wasn't a single one that was like, I'm with the other guys and not Kyle. And so like, this is how in any conceivable world is that not a good thing? You know what I mean? So, yes, there's going to be some what I call TFGs, too far gones. We all accept that. The question is, what percentage is it? And then what percentage are actually changeable? You know? Yeah. That's like a, I guess, the, like the whole, it's like the men's rights stuff right now. Like the red pill is like made a huge comeback in, since uh, 2016. And like, yeah, they've gotten a little bit better what they do. It wasn't it's not like the case in 2016 where they were like, they were all just like Nazis. Like my, my, my memory of like uh, red pill people back then. Um, who are all kind of gone now. But um, yeah, it's, I don't know, because I think, yeah, like the, like like you just said, like putting left-leaning people into those spaces to give alternative positions, like, of course it works. And especially because a lot of these red pill channels, um, I've been trying to get, like, watch a few of them just to see what they're about. One of the things I noticed about them really early on is that they all talk like virgins. It's really weird. They just, the, the, the understanding they have of women and like what women want and how women behave and what like, it's just, it's it sounds like they've never met a woman in their entire life or they probably just like, you know, they got famous and then just rode off that back, right? Um, yeah, so it like, there is definitely like a, and you know, even with like, whether it's like fresh and fit and all that, and these people who uh, are like very wealthy and probably do have like lots of partners and uh, do very well uh, with what they want, like their audience members aren't like that. Their audience members aren't going to have like a high income and like 8 million partners before they turn 30, right? And yeah, they probably do need to like hear something else uh, from someone who's maybe a bit more like down to earth, you know? Um, yeah, people gave Destiny yeah. shit for going on, <coughs> excuse me, for going on there. Um and, you know, that was a decision. Like, I see where he's coming from because he's going to go in there. He's not going to, like, just cuck himself to whatever their viewpoint is. He's going to push back a little bit. And so anybody who would, like, question that. I mean, I get, okay, I'll amend my take a little bit. Like, if you go in there and you're just going in there for it to be a hug box and everybody, like, jerks each other off, mm. then, yeah, don't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Then it's like you as this nominal left-wing person or giving credence to the right-wing ideas so you're planning this false idea in everybody's head like see even the reasonable lefties all agree with us you know what yeah. i mean but it, as long as you're actually repping your positions and repping what you believe then I, I see no issue with it i think there's a lack of confidence in just like the basic workings of democracy that kind of underlies some of this too i mean you know this all a lot of this starts with the rise and election of trump which really shocked people and there was the sense that like these old ugly ideas that we felt like we'd sort of at least pushed out of the mainstream not that they were ever dead were kind of coming back i mean just like you see now with you know kanye west being out there with just out and out like insane anti-semitism and hitler worship um, the sense that, okay, we thought we had dealt with some of this stuff and now here it is and a sense of the political system being kind of out of control and feeling like the normal means of dealing with that through like debate in a marketplace of ideas was maybe not working. Maybe these people are too crazy. They're too far gone that we could ever reach them. So if you're, if that's your view, and I think that's a view that's very much reinforced by a lot of, um, mainstream press and like the partisan divides in mainstream press, if that's your view, then, yeah, your instinct is not going to be, let me engage, 
let's allow some of these views out so that we can deal with them directly, your instinct is going to be, we just got to use whatever means necessary to kind of push them to the sidelines. Well, yeah, I think the problem is, is that uh, the anti-Semitism is a really good example, right? Because like how well, how much of a good job did like society uh, do at deplatforming or just like tab like tabooing anti-Semitism, right? Because even a lot of the conservatives have come out against Ye for and Fuentes for saying all that stuff. But like, has like has anti-Semitism really gone like away that as much as we think it has? Because if you look at like hate crime stats for the last decade, like Jews are all at the top almost everywhere, yeah. but no one really talks about it that much. Or like whenever you do these polls about like, uh, like especially like American youths and their opinions on the Holocaust, it's like, uh, what percentage of American like millennials think that um, the Holocaust happened because the Jews had too much power? It's like 20% or something, like obscene number like that. Wow. So um, yeah, there's, um, I remember this as a kid, like it was like, that was one of the most normal takes in the world um, uh, for people to say it was, uh, but yeah, we just don't, like not talking about it clearly hasn't helped. Now, I think maybe the problem is, is that people aren't that equipped to deal with a lot of those ideas. But I think um, I can see why uh, people are turned off by that thought of engaging because there's like, uh, I don't know if you know the idea of like progressive dogma, like the idea that um, it's actually good for a society to be a little bit like uh, dogmatic and tunnel visioned about certain things. So I, for example, a, a really good one is that I don't really think we should necessarily expect the average person to explain like morally, philosophically why incest is bad, right? We just, we all know it's bad. Uh, maybe some people can't really give the best explanation for why it's bad, but like it probably, it's okay that we just kind of accept that for like without thinking about it too much. But I think people want to do that and have that progressive dogma over ideas that haven't been fully settled yet. Like, mm. um, I know a very popular progressive dogma right now, uh, which I agree with, is that trans women are women. But it doesn't. It's not hard to find people who say that, um, like especially like normies who say that. But as soon as you ask them, like you push them a little bit, and actually they don't believe that at all. They just say that because they think that's the thing you're supposed to say. Or the ones who maybe do say it, like believe it, like they don't really know why they believe it. It's just kind of like, it's just what you say. Um, and I think those are arguments that people uh, are kind of shy away from because they think the battle's been won. But I mean, it has in a lot of places. But like, um, I think that's the like the big issue is trying to treat a lot of ideas like they're settled when in the public, like when they're actually not, when there is actually a lot of pushback that needs to be uh, dealt with. Yeah, well, people like Matt Walsh, sees on that as an opening to say, well, they won't even explain mm -hmm. why that we just have to accept it. They just have their authoritarian tolerance in the words of, words of Jordan Peterson are just forced on us without any sort of explanation. And then, you know, he gets a lot of uh, attention and credit for his um, What is a Woman documentary offering like a conservative uh, rebuke that he portrays as being much more thorough than the thinking from the progressives. So, so the only time where I'm not like totally on board with engagement. I mean, there's a few examples. So like, number one, if I feel like the person is just bad faith, you know what I mean? Yes. Like they, mm. I, they actually don't mean what they say. I know they don't mean what they say. Also, if you, if you're dealing with somebody who literally has a 100% disagreement with you, I always find that a little challenging too. Cause like when you try to establish some basic facts in the, in the process of making a bigger point, it's like, well, you're going to, be against me even when I'm building up. And it's like, if you yeah. can't even agree to that, it's like, we're just kind of wasting our time here. So there I'm a little shaky. And then the other thing is like, 
yeah, and they used to do this on CNN back in the day. They would they would allow debates between like we got this person who believes in like creationism or intelligent design, and we're going to put them up against you know somebody who's a scientist who believes in evolution, and they would like debate that. And so I always understood the argument, and I kind of agree with it. They're like you're kind of giving this false notion that this is a fifty fifty proposition. You know what I mean? As if like the we don't already have the answer on this question, and we do have the answer on this question. Mm -hmm. So on that one, I don't know. My 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 gut instinct is a little different than the like, let's just engage and change people's minds. Cause there it's like, I don't know, something about that strikes me as different. And then another one, which I kind of struggle with, but it's not because I don't want to engage on this. It's more because I actually think Sam Harris makes a decent point on this when it comes to like anti-vaccine conspiracies. It's like the people who are up to their eyeballs on anti-vaccine conspiracies, they have like 17,000 little anecdotal, anecdotal quote-unquote data points, which if usually when you dig, they're at not actually data points. They're like, this is something that was made up and was on a Facebook meme, right? Like this originated from Alex Jones or whoever the hell, you know? And it's like, how do you debate that issue and, and do it justice when somebody's going to be like, did you read the article that came out of, the study that came out of Indonesia yesterday, which found that, you know, ivermectin has a 100% efficacy thing and it's like no i didn't read the indonesian study that came out yesterday <laughs> so it's almost like engaging in that way strikes me as maybe detrimental i guess what i'm saying is you have to really be prepared yeah if you're going to dive into certain waters you know what i mean yeah because if their obsession is all of these little anecdotes and supposed studies and etc and you're coming in as a generalist you're going to struggle to re rebut yeah. them point by point because they're just like way deeper into the so, topic. I guess I'm not against engaging on that in principle, but I'm against it unless I have like literally all of the information at my fingertips where I can accurately kind of rebut it. Because this used to be like the 9-11 conspiracy theorists. Yeah. They were, I mean, look, when I was younger, I dipped my toe in that water a little bit, right? <laughs> and it was like, and the reason is, what they do is they overwhelm you with these things that sound like little factoids and data right. points. And again, if you dig deeper, it's like, well, that's not exactly true. And they're kind of misstating this or whatever. But like, they'd overwhelm you with so much of it that all of a sudden you seem like you're a genius. You really do understand it inside and out. And it really is a conspiracy. You know, you could, and to have somebody who's like kind of a normie with the position of like, no, it's not an inside job. Debate somebody who's well-versed in these. Those documentaries are super convincing. There's yeah. like a creativity to conspiracy theories sometimes where it's like, these people are really like, they're talented at what they're doing here, which is like building a narrative around something that's fundamentally not true. Okay. And so like, it, that's a tough one where it's like, if you're going to engage there, you have to come correct. And it would be bad if you have somebody who has the right position, but really can't defend it at all. Yeah. Because then it just looks like they got hammered. Rogan did this one time with, uh, he went on like Penn Jillette's radio show back in the day. Rogan was arguing the moon landing was fake. And he was arguing against some guy who's like supposed to be an expert on, on it in the opposite direction. And like, Rogan crushed him. This was back when he believed the moon landing was fake. And I, Penn Jillette was like, God damn it, I'm walking out of here now thinking the moon landing was fake. And my audience is too. I, I was actually, and that does a disservice to it. You yeah, know I was actually thinking of another Rogan uh, incident where he had Alex Jones on. And Alex was just like one thing after another after another. And of course, this is Alex's bread and butter. And, and there's like no one on the planet who's better at spinning a web of lies and conspiracies than Alex Jones. And Joe was really trying. Okay, wait, wait, let's look that one up. Let's look that one up. But, but it's just, just ineffectual, totally ineffectual. It's just too much coming at you at once. Yeah, I think 
people like I think flat earthers, especially like that, they like mm. overall in the world, they've like flat earthers have won a lot more debates than they've lost. But yeah, um, <laughs> I do, yeah, because although I think I am quite permissive with free speech, at least like definitely more than most leftists, like I also do, like my standard for like responsible or irresponsible platforming is probably quite high because um, it's not just that people are bad faith or that they're so obsessed that they've got all the talking points. It's just that even if they don't, um, even if they're just like, small enough or they're just like optical enough like for a lot of those uh like really extreme conspiracy theorists or even just like radicals in general i don't think they, they need to be that extreme there are just like, there are people online where their entire uh thing is like it's not really about whether or not their arguments make sense it's just about attention and even if you can be right on like every point it still kind of feels like they've won um or like they're not really there to speak to you. They're there to speak to their audience. Mm-hmm. Or they're playing a character. Or they're like, or they're they're the kind of person whose content actually like just thrives on getting attention and shouting at someone who disagrees with it. Like, like that's like I think in like the kind of extremist wing, there's a like a there's a huge contingency of that. So uh yeah, that's kind of where I would think there is yeah, there's not really that much use engaging. Um even for um like I've had a couple of debates with Holocaust deniers and the problem with uh, those kind of groups is, is like, it doesn't matter. Like even if you you get them on every single point, they will, uh, they'll go to their discords and they'll just say like, oh, this person got destroyed and, uh, and just, and th- that's all they need. And they've got like, they've got the X thousand views or whatever. So they feel like relevant. And um, yeah, so I think, yeah, like platforming is like responsible. Plat- like, I think you can keep people on a platform, but whether or not you give them attention, if you're especially like a bigger creator is like, yeah, I think that's something that I take quite seriously. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's always been the giant gaping hole through, you know, it's the issue with debate is that you can have somebody who's a very charismatic speaker who knows how to communicate. And even if they're dead wrong, it could look like they win over the person who's factually correct, but is just bad at communicating. Because yeah. the power of communication is huge. And we've talked about this a million times, but some people, when they talk, you just zone out. Other people, when they talk, you're like hanging on their every word. And there's no logical reason for it. It's all just in the delivery. It's in the mm-hmm. it's in the, the performance and the way they string the sentences together and how punchy are they and how smooth are they and all that stuff. Yeah, well, and that's just a the, flaw in humans, you know what I mean? A lot of the debate bro culture is more performative than it is actually trying to like sort through an issue yeah. in like well, a nuanced way. The best know? of both worlds is you have the charisma and the engaging ability, the you know, you're able to connect and you're a good communicator, but also you have the facts there. It reminds me of it was when I I went on Fox News years ago and it was this show that uh, you'd have like a radio host from the left and a radio host from the right. You remember this? Mm. And and you'd sort of uh, clash. And so I I thought I did a fantastic job on the show at the time all like the progressive shows covered it and were like oh snap like kyle schooled him but i remember there was like one article in some british outlet i want to say it was like the spectator or the independent or something like that where they totally flipped it they were like you know a uh, left-wing commentator gets owned by guy looked like uncle fester he's bald <laughs> kind of heavy but like i remember looking at that like wow that's amazing like this is amazing this is like because you know you look at that and you think there's some semblance of objectivity in the claim that like i i beat them and my ideas were better and it yeah. came across but they it was just like no let's just flip it and that's to your point about you know the holocaust denial people who doesn't matter you could check me check me check me check me check me and they're like bro you got wrecked dog yeah that's like the huge problem with debate is that 
sometimes, uh, you know, the public perception of it does not match. Like if you literally write down the answers of both people on paper and then like, <laughs> well, there's know, like rigorously the fact itself, check it. It's not. Yeah. And then there's like the promotional cycle after the fact right. to yeah. fight for the public mm -hmm. opinion of who actually performed better and quote unquote won. Yeah. So you got to be smart in how you engage, you know, like I went on that PBD podcast. I'll probably do some other right wing shows coming up. But you got to be intelligent about how you approach it, you know, mm -hmm. and you got to realize what the goals are. And like I said, as long as you're going out of there, having some people curious about your ideology more than they were before, then I think that's a victory. Yeah. And I think you chip away over time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that. Kind of agree with <laughs> that. All right, cool. Well, uh, Lonerbox, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was a phenomenal conversation. Tell everybody like uh, where they could find you, whether it's Twitter or, or Twitch or YouTube or whatever. Yeah, you can find me as Lonerbox, uh, one word, just anywhere, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch. Uh, I sometimes do streams and debates and all that kind of thing, but mostly just YouTube videos, video essays, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and uh, also, thanks a lot for having me on. I really didn't expect this. <laughs> it was no, oh. it's, it's our pleasure. And again, I just want to plug one more time. Everybody needs to go check out. We didn't even get into the abortion topic, but you did. Honestly, oh. I would say it's the best abortion video I've ever seen. You are so thorough. You know, you give credence. And this is something that's sorely lacking in the discourse is like, I feel like you were fair to the pro-lifers while discussing the pro-life position and criticizing it and stuff. I thought that was phenomenal. And so everybody go check out the video on abortion, go check out the video on deplatforming and go check out that Jordan Peterson video. Those are three of our favorites over here. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a good one. Great to chat with you. All right. So that was Loner Box. So uh, I like that guy. And the reason is very simple. There's three categories of uh, YouTubers or podcasters or political commentators that really annoy me massively. Okay. This is something I, you know, I kind of, it's dawned on me relatively recently. One type is what I call the terminal contrarian. Mm. Where it's, you're just always like, whatever the conventional wisdom is and whatever like the mainstream take is, it's wrong. It's wrong. No matter what that is. No matter what is. it is, it's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. So that's one kind that annoy me. Because yeah. that's in a way that's just as much group thinky of course. As the conventional wisdom type. You're still just you're defining just yourself it. by the conventional right. wisdom. You're just flipping it. And yeah. then you get to say, like, the the small percent of the time when you end up being right, like, you're the truth teller. Right, exactly. You just ignore yeah, yeah, all yeah. the times yeah. that you're wrong. That's yeah. the terminal contrarian. He is not that. Okay. Yeah. The other one that annoys me, I call them the narrative humper. Yeah. Where it's like, I have my narrative. I will always bring it back to, to this narrative. And I don't allow in any sort of contrary evidence. I, I won't... There's no nuance. Yeah. It's just like, this is my narrative. And I'm going to... No, no, no. Man with a hammer syndrome. Right, exactly. Any issue, you're going to bring this narrative to it. Yep. If it mm -hmm. doesn't fit in your narrative, you're Don't just going to ignore it completely. Don't care. You're going to cherry pick Or even like a whole story, even an yeah. entire story that would like sort of go against the narrative. It's just, you just, it's gone. Like, I'm just not going to talk gonna, about I'm just going to ignore yeah. that that exactly. even exists. Or Which is a lie by omission, of course. Yes. Okay. And then the third one is, and this one's probably the one most people are guilty of, somebody whose audience captured, you know, who is just, yeah. oh, oh, Huh? Which way is the wind blowing on online in my audience? I'm going that way. Yeah. And it's like, grow, grow a fucking pair, please. Just grow a pair. Like, just say what you actually think. I swear it's not that difficult. Just say it. You know what I mean? And just don't. I mean, I think the thing that helps you stay on a better path is just not drowning in criticism and and you know reading replies. I've seen many a brain broken online by reading replies. Yes, you absolutely. Know? Yeah. I mean, look, that's where the business incentives are. You know, I mean, not to. 
like, I think people go overboard calling everyone a grifter, but obviously human beings are subject to like incentive structures. Mm -hmm. And if you see like, oh, this is what gets me clicks and this is what they want to hear, then it's very easy to just convince yourself that you're doing the right thing by going in that direction every single time. So I would contend that mindset is very short-sighted because how can you in the long run maintain yourself, your own views and and continue if you just sort of get lost in the winds of what the whims are. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> lost in the whims of the whims. No, lost in the winds oh. of what the whims are. <laughs> I I mean, it's not a project I'm interested in. You know, I, it's not, I think that would be, I think that'd be sort of soul destroying. Because you're going to get lost at some, you're going to be lost. You're going to yeah. find yourself in the discourse and, and be like, I don't even know what I believe anymore. It's, <laughs> it's no different than, you know, for example, when I was at MSNBC and you're like very captured by what you, the, the way that the, corporate executives have sort of shaped the environment and what you know you're supposed to say and not supposed to say and whatever and ultimately ends up to being very hollow you're like i have this platform where i get to speak speak to these people but i don't even get to really speak on topics that i think are important i don't get to say all the things that i think are important so yeah i just think that's a very uh even if it's financially lucrative successful you gain audience whatever to me it's not something i'm interested in yeah yeah. So anyway, that's my, we always dump on corporate media and for, rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, they're the worst and they have the biggest audience. They have the most sway. So dunking on them, they have their own set of issues that we talk about all the time. Yeah. Um, but if you're building- But this, an- is, this is not, this is at independent media and this is at individual creators, the terminal contrarians, the narrative humpers and the people who are audience captured. Those are the three. If you're interested in building a better ecosystem outside of the mainstream through independent media, you have to be honest about where the pitfalls and the flaws and the messed up incentives are. Because I mean, the whole problem with corporate media is like their incentives are to please advertisers and, you know, a corporate bottom line. And so you have to be able to look. And access to the deep yeah. state and to yeah. politicians. The, the, exactly. And yeah. Yes. So you have to be able to look at, okay, well, where are the pitfalls and what can we do to sort of mitigate mitigate the incentives? Because human beings are flawed and they are subject to biases and, you know, convincing themselves that going in the direction that also is best for their, like, financial end is the right thing to do. So you have to be able to look at these things as well. Yeah. And you should be able to describe your general perspective, your political viewpoint. You should be sort of upfront with that as opposed to kind of like hiding the ball or never touching it. Because there's a lot of channels that are just criticism, criticism of this, criticism of that. But they never get to like, well, what are you actually, mm. what's your perspective that you're, you know, that you're criticizing from? Like, what's yeah. the, what's your actual view? And that, that always annoyed me too. You know, this was an old debate. Um, this was back in the day Greenwald had a debate. This was like around the NSA time uh-huh. where he had a debate with somebody. I think it was from the New York Times, maybe in the Washington Post or something, where they were talking about like the nature of journalism and the mm. way journalism should be. And I think they actually both now in retrospect made good points. The point of whoever the reporter was for the New York Times was like, yeah. look, facts first and facts primary and that's it. You know what I mean? And Glenn was making the argument that's not really possible because even by virtue of the fact you're covering one thing over another thing, your ideological biases are getting yes. involved. Yes. You know, so his take was like, you should just be upfront with whatever you're, whatever you believe. Yeah, like what what that is upfront. So people know that upfront. So if somebody, the beginning of a show is like, I'm a conservative Republican, I'm a Trump guy, and now I'm going to give the commentary. It's like, okay, okay, fair enough. You know, or on the flip side, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. I'm, I believe in social democracy. Then good, good. But a lot of people, it's like, Hide the ball with that 
and just pretend like whatever your subjective take is is totally objective. And of course, plenty fudging the facts too is the biggest. I mean, those issue. editorial choices of what to cover are in some ways the most important thing. That's you right. You see that yeah. really clearly with the cable news divide, like MSNBC during Russiagate, anything that had to do with the Russia story and that looked bad for Trump, they were going to cover it. Over on Fox News, obviously, always it's anything that's going on at the border, anything that's going to make Democrats look bad, they're all over it. They they used to love, I don't know if they do this as much, they used to love to find those stories of like, the government spent $13 for a muffin. We're right, gonna, yeah, like, yeah, blow, yeah, yeah, You know, yeah, yeah. wall-to-wall coverage right. over this. Whole, so those sorts of things really shape your impression of what matters and what's actually going on in the country and the world. Yeah, so in Media Literacy 101, people should be taught, like, find the biases and the perspectives up front. And if you're in the field, tell say it up front. I mean, that doesn't get you very far, though, because if they, a lot of people in mainstream media have to pretend like, we don't even have an opinion. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's like, no, you should be upfront with what your perspective is. And then also basically be married to the facts and make sure you never fudge those. Those come first and foremost. And then you give your, yeah. your take on it, kind of. And I think you started this off as a way of saying you don't feel loner box meets any of these annoying yeah, no, categories. Yeah, he, no, he's, he's a very he, independent thinker. Yeah, he's an independent thinker. And I'm sure there's plenty of areas where him and I disagree. Um, we didn't get into them in this conversation, but the fact that he very clearly is not uh, doesn't fall into any of these categories is refreshing because sometimes it's, you know, it's difficult out there to find people who avoid all these pitfalls. His video in particular on um, free speech, why deplatforming works and why it doesn't is the title of it, uh, made me think deeper on a couple of different issues surrounding it. So I think that's what you get from his videos. Like it'll push you a little bit. It'll push you to like sort of flesh out your own views and really figure out what you think about it and give you some of the context and background. They're very thoughtful. They're all very thoughtful. Right. He's not, he's not narrative humping. He's yeah. telling you what he really thinks. And if there's a, if there's a serious flaw in what his position is, he'll be like, Hey, there's this flaw I just found in my position. We need to examine this. And you don't get you don't get that from most people. Mm-mm. You get the exact opposite from most people. Yeah, so, definitely anyway. worth checking them out. All right, guys, we love you very much. Thank you so much for listening to us. Um, everybody, go to Substack. You can either sign up for free, and then you get the audio podcast as soon as it drops, or if you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of all of the interviews, and you get them a day early. So usually they drop on Fridays. Uh, and of course, a massive shout out to everybody who already is supporting us on Substack. Uh, you guys are awesome. You guys make this work. Um, I mean, look, we're one of the only people I know of that we don't work with advertisers. We don't do any ads. We find it kind of gross. And so you got to do the model where you build it from the bottom up. And so they make it possible for us to do that. Absolutely. Love y'all. We'll see you next week. 